0: Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website We Got This Covered. I am Jonathan Lack. And I am Sean Chapman. And we are here to talk about television again! Yes! More television! Last week, if you missed it, we started our two-part epic world-shattering countdown of our top ten favorite TV shows of all time. The world is now
1: halfway shattered.
0: Yes. So, you know, sorry Southern Hemisphere. We... Yes, we are talking about our top ten favorite TV shows of all time. It's awesome, because nothing else is going on right now, so we had this episode in our back pocket, so we're going to do it now. And I am out of town this week, so you're listening to part two while I am off in in Portland, Oregon, hanging out with Doing some Doing whatever the fuck you do in Portland, Oregon. I, I will find out what you do in Portland, Oregon, because as of now, when we're recording this, I don't actually know. I've been to Portland, Oregon. Do you want to know okay. what you do in Portland, Oregon? What do you
1: do? Nothing. Okay other than read a lot of Sherlock Holmes short stories. I believe that's what I was doing when I was in
0: Portland, Oregon. So, yes. bring some of those with you. Thank God it's easy to transport large amounts of, like, text and books, like, just on your, like, iPad now. Yeah. And it's traveling much easier. Speaking of books, you can buy my book, Fade to Lack, a greatest journey in the world of modern film, from Amazon.com. What? Sales pitch! Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Visit www.fade2lack.com. right. That's my sales pitch. Okay. I'm getting it's, getting it's just getting lazier every week.
1: Can you watch it on TV? No. Oh, okay.
0: Been, we'll, we'll, we'll I be, thought a, it would
1: have something to do with what we were talking about. No, no,
0: no. So, la, as I said last week, episode thirty-eight, we started our countdown with the our number, our favorite ten through six shows. Sean and I have separate lists. Yep. They sometimes overlap. We're going back and forth. And uh, this week we'll be continuing with five through one. So if you missed last week, go back and listen to it. But if you listened to it last week, we're going to do a quick recap here. If you have, if you've been a week since you listened to it and you forgot. So let's start. Uh, my number ten was Star Trek and Star Trek: The Next Generation, sort of combined. Your number ten was Blackadder. Yes, my number nine was Doctor Who, and my number nine was Star Trek: The Original Series. My number eight was NBC's Parks and Recreation, and my number eight was the Sherlock
1: Holmes Granada television series.
0: My number seven was Firefly. My number seven was Claymore. My number six was Full Metal Alchemist, and my number six was Angel Beats. Alright, and my number five show is the first one we're talking about on this podcast, NBC's Chuck. The little show that could. The little show that nearly got cancelled. And then nearly got cancelled. And then the nearly, nearly got, got cancelled. Yep, over and over again. And and just kept chugging along and was really, really good throughout. Chuck is just a really special show to me, and while I think qualitatively I would maybe flip it with Full Metal Alchemist just from nostalgia and the love I feel for this show and the amount of time I spent writing about it and sharing it with other people, Chuck, I, I could put it further. I could put it like number three, two, or one. It's just like, I just love this show so much and I had such fun with it while it was on the air. If you don't know, Chuck is the story of a guy, he works, he's like sort of like, he's a really smart guy, main character Chuck Bartowski, played by Zachary Levi, and he he's basically, he had ambitions at one point, but now he works at... The Buy More, which is like Best Buy, he's part of the nerd herd, and he uh, he just kind of that's what he's doing with his life. And one day, a a sexy or he the sexy secret agent comes in later because first he gets an email from an old college roommate has this weird file that he watches that has just like flashing pictures. Turns out that downloads into his brain the all the government secrets. It's called the Intersect. It's an advanced supercomputer run by the human brain. I should note nothing on Chuck makes scientific sense. Yes. <laughs> Yes. yes, Chuck. obviously has, true so far. Chuck is famous, in fact, for its plot holes, but that's, that's, that's another discussion. Anyway, but he gets the intersect, so now he knows all the government's secrets, and when he sees certain things, he will flash on them. So, like, uh, he'll see something, and it will, like, trigger a flash inside his brain that gives him that information, and so the government now needs him. So this sexy secret agent, played by Yvonne Strahovski, who gave for five seasons one of the best performances on television as Sarah Walker. She is sort of his handler. She comes in from the CIA. Um, and then John Casey, Colonel John Casey later on, played by Adam Baldwin, comes in from the NSA. They are both tasked... He's tasked with killing Chuck Bartowski. She's tasked with protecting him and figuring out what's going on. And uh, eventually, they, just, they at the end of the pilot, they basically have to team up, and they become what, what fans always called them, a Team Bartowski. The three of them are sort of like solving mysteries and saving the day and helping the U.S. government and sometimes working against the U.S. government if the U.S. government are being dicks, because every show gets to that point, if it's about spies, where you have to go against the system. Yeah. And, you know, he falls in love with Sarah. They eventually get married. His friend Morgan eventually becomes part of the team. Morgan, played by Joshua Gomez. You know, he's got, the other characters include his sister Ellie, um, played by Sarah Lancaster, and her awesome boyfriend, accurately named Captain Awesome, played by Ryan McPartland. And uh, you've got Big Mike, who's the owner of the store. Uh, Buy More, who you eventually found out is the cousin of Reginald Val Johnson's character in Die Hard, in one of the funnest crossovers the show would ever do. Huh. In the Christmas episode in Season 2, which is one of their best episodes, Reginald Val Johnson reprises his role as Sergeant Al Powell and uh, comes back for an episode. Comes back! Comes back, comes back yeah. Movie. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you find out Big Mike is, is his, you know... Is, is his cousin? So that's that's a fun. You've got a uh, Lester and Jeff at the Bymore who eventually team up to become the awesome rock band Jeffster. They're actually terrible, but they're awesome because they're terrible. And there's a bunch of action scenes where they will be playing music. Action will be going on, like in the season two finale, which is one of my favorite episodes of TV ever. Maybe my single favorite TV episode ever. It's really good. Anyway, I cannot talk about Chuck coherently because I love yeah, the clear. shit out of this show. It is so great. Basically, I mean, Chuck was such a special show because it, it really did stay on the air for two reasons. One, because NBC sucked throughout its run. Continues to suck. Yeah. And it was low-rated, but NBC had nothing better. So it got this wonderful Monday, 9 p.m. or, or 8 p.m. time slot just for its entire run because, except this final season was moved to Friday's, but it just it stayed there because NBC sucks, but also because fans really loved it and made, made it known that they loved this show but I don't think, by being annoying, it wasn't like the Firefly thing where you're just bitching out NBC yeah. and stuff. They tried to find like helpful ways to help the show. So, like, one of the coolest fan efforts ever was end of season two, Subway had been sort of a promoter of Chuck that whole season. They'd had some product placement. So fans said, well, why don't we all go out and then buy, like, $5 footlongs? That was, like, the new Subway thing at the time. Um, that was, like, their big promotion. And yeah. now is why everyone loves Subway. And uh, so that was just, like, fans got together, and it was a big enough internet effort that it made a, made a, made a difference. And that's that's something that, like, if you ever want to save a TV show, that's the way to do it because TVs cost money, and if you can show that the TV show is making money, that helps. Yeah. And it did. Subway, actually, the, head, the CEO of Subway apparently called the chairman of NBC and said, please keep this show on the air. It's driving our sales through the roof. So that was a pretty cool story. And then there's people loved it, and so that always helped NBC throughout the years because they could have tried a new show there, but they kept chucking on largely because, you know, people loved it, and it made them look good to have this show people yeah. loved on the air. And Chuck is just so fun. It's, it's sort of, to me, kind of like the ultimate TV show that I would watch week to week. Obviously, there's a lot of shows out there now that I would prefer to just watch when they're done on DVD, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but Chuck was a show that was so much fun to watch every week, because while it was serialized and it had ongoing story arcs, every episode of Chuck was still had its own story, its own mission, but it didn't feel episodic in this sort of like mission of the week thing. It was very much, they had really fun and creative stories to tell every week. And because this is a character-based show, first and foremost, not plot-based, really just about the characters and the action they can get into, they really could do anything with these characters within a certain set of boundaries and have a lot of fun with it. The show's second season, which is um, just one of, basically, one of my two or three favorite TV seasons of all time, it was just flawless, and it was an example of telling an arc over twenty-two episodes, but doing it in such a way where you don't feel like you're you're doing filler or anything like that. It's just the characters reach a point in episode twenty-two where everything changes very organically because we've been building up to it. And that season finale that year is just one of my favorite TV episodes ever. It is as satisfying a conclusion to a season as there has ever been, and it was just so good. And the show just kept on being good after that. Season three was, I think, almost as good as season two. Come some little structural hiccups because they were renewed for thirteen episodes. Episode 13 was a series finale, because they didn't think they would get more, yeah. and then they got six ep- extra on top of that, so those six are kind of just, their like an, a mini season after that. Season four wound up having the exact same thing, although it was 24 episodes, so they had 13 and 11, so there was like two seasons and one there, and the second half of that was weaker because they didn't, again, they didn't know they were going to get it, yeah. and they had to build a full arc this time, and it wasn't as good, although I think my second favorite episode of the series is the season four finale. Two. <laughs> Two season four finales, second one. And then season five, which is just 13 episodes, was the one where they just said, you can come back for 13 more episodes, but then you're done. And that season was hobbled by the show literally having no budget. It just looked so friggin' cheap, but they still told really good stories, and it had a really, really great two-hour series finale that has just, just the last scene of that is just one of my favorite TV scenes of all time. And I just think throughout, Chuck just was... I talked earlier about Parks and Recreation on the last episode being a show that was so optimistic and just had so much fun loving its characters and having this optimistic worldview. Chuck is kind of like that. It could get dark when it needed to because they are dealing with, you know, bad guys and terrorists sometimes. But uh, on the whole, Chuck is a very loving guy. Sarah's a very loving person. And so are most of their friends. And even, you know, Casey comes around at a certain point and he loves these characters. And it's just a show that made me happy each and every week. And it's also a show that had the depth necessary for me to write about it every week. I, from season three premiere onwards, I wrote about every episode of this show. I have, if you go to JonathanLack.com, I I archive them all there, and I wrote the shit out of this show, and I love doing it, and it was so much fun to follow. And I I just really love Chuck, and one of my favorite stories I like to tell is when I was in L.A. my junior year of high school. We were looking at colleges out there. We went to visit the the Warner Brothers backlot. And while Chuck aired on NBC, it was a Warner Brothers television TV series. They owned it. It was shot on the Warner Brothers backlot. And on the tour, they wound up showing us the set of several sets from Chuck, including the one, this sort of courtyard where Chuck's room and his... or where Chuck's apartment and his sister's apartment are. And that courtyard is... I mean, that's where a lot of stuff happens on the show. And what's so interesting about that set is it's a soundstage, but the apartments... You would normally build like the courtyard thing and then the apartments would be in a separate place. That's how yeah. sound stages are usually constructed. It was all totally built as you see it on the show, except oh. if it wasn't outside. So, like, from that courtyard, you walk into Chuck's room, that's the set for Chuck's room. Really fascinating. And I got to see all that stuff, got to see the Buy More cage in the back where they keep all the electronics and stuff, um, and some other places that were more generic that everyone on the WB lot uses where they shoot the show. And um, that was really fun. I have a Chuck, my the, the number one baseball cap I wear when I need to wear a baseball cap is my Chuck hat I bought on that tour. I just love Chuck. It was such a big part of my life for five years there. Um, it's, it really, I think on this list, yeah, on this list, this is the only show I started watching episode one, day it aired, actually before it aired, I saw the pilot early, and, uh, I watched every episode from there on out as it aired, and I was really happy to do that, like, I don't think Chuck would be quite as endearing to me if I had sat down, you know, last year and just marathoned all five seasons, because it was really fun to watch as it, as it went along, and I, I love the hell out of this show, and just great performances across the board, and, and great stories, and just awesome. So, that's Chuck. Awesome. Yes. One of the Alrighty. characters is named Captain Awesome, so I think Awesome is totally applicable to this show. Sure. Alright. That was my number five. Sean, what is your number five?
1: My number five is Angel. Sands the Beats. <laughs> if, if you remember, my number six was Angel Beats. This an is exclamation mark. This is just Angel. No the Joss beats. Whedon show. No exclamation mark. Yes, it is the Joss Whedon show. The, the spin-off from Buffy. The, I feel, the superior show of the two even though most people I know that've seen both of them think that Buffy is better, but that's that's just wrong. Well,
0: it's probably a matter of taste.
1: It's, well, no, it's it's a matter of fact. Angel is better, as far as I'm concerned. You are a dick. <laughs> well, it's not my fault that most people are wrong. It's like all the people who go around saying that Picard is better than Kirk. You're fucking wrong. I'm sorry. In the story, well, that's why don't why don't you tell settled us... it last half, last half? Why don't you I, I wish you had by... seen all of Buffy and all of Angel because then we could settle it here two, alongside it, Angel is better. Okay, why don't you
0: tell us why Angel is better, and please don't spoil things.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll do my... I mean, I'll try not to spoil things, but yeah. I mean, Angel is better, because Angel, I think, is a better character than Buffy. I think he's a much more likable character. I think he's got a much more interesting arc. And I think Angel... The main reason why the TV show is better than the Buffy TV show, I think, is because it's more consistently good. Where with Buffy, I only really like... What was it, seasons 2 and 3, because season 4 is when she goes to college, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. so seasons 2 and 3 are the only ones I particularly like of Buffy. Like, I don't dislike any of the other seasons, but I don't think any of the other ones are really great. I hate season 1. I think season 1 of Buffy is horrible. I almost stopped watching because I really think season 1 of Buffy is really bad. And then past that point, season 4 has some like, one or two really phenomenal episodes in Buffy, but like, the season arcs and stuff in season 4 are pretty bad. Season 5, I think, is pretty bad. Season 6, I think, is pretty bad. Like, like for buffy standards i guess okay. it's not like for bad for te- more normal tv standards but for like for stuff on this list i would call those seasons pretty bad
0: for the record i agree 2 and 3 are the best i think those are two of the best tv seasons ever but i like season 4 a lot even though i agree the arc in that season is very messy and i season 5 is my least favorite of the ones i've seen well okay 1's the worst cuz they were still figuring out <laughs> One what the show is was pretty bad but you know Tough. um uh, season 5 is, as, has a lot of... I mean, it has the body episode, which is just fucking yeah. crushingly uh, uh, just amazing.
1: Yeah, and season 4 has Hush, yeah. which is, I think, the best episode
0: of that show. And season 6 has the musical episode, which Sean hates, and he's the only person I on Earth hate, who hates it.
1: I hate musicals, and I think that musical episode was a really cheap way of getting of trying to relieve all that character tension that they had been building up for, like, three seasons. But and I disagree, but...
0: Yeah, well, season so again, I Actually, record? Wrong. Can I finish what I was fucking saying, Sean?
1: Okay, finish, finish saying your wrong things.
0: I, I like season 6 of Buffy. That, to me, is my favorite outside of 2 and 3. I think season 6 was actually very good, but season I'm not. Season
1: 6, on. the one with the Dark Willow arc? Or yeah. Is it season 5? Okay, then, yeah, season 6 is probably the next best one. Yeah. Seven.
0: I would the not dark call arc,
1: I will go on record saying the Dark Willow arc is the best Jedi falling to the dark side story I have ever seen. Okay. I don't know how, why that came about in a way that has no Jedi involved in it whatsoever. That absolutely, like, beat for beat, best fucking Jedi Falling to the Dark Side story is the Dark Willow arc.
0: She eviscerates someone. It's great. I can't believe it. She doesn't it. eviscerate. She, like, flays someone. She, like, removes the skin. Oh, yeah. Eviscerates is, diff- is when you take their insides out. Okay. Yes. Uh, whatever you say there. Okay. So, but tell us about Angel.
1: So, Angel is the spin-off starring the character Angel, who... Was one of the reasons why I think season two and three of Buffy were the best seasons because I think David, the angel character played by David Boreanaz, is a really interesting character. He's and and an angel. I think what they managed to do, I think, is give a much more I want to kind of say mature show than not just Buffy, but like the vast majority of shows out there. And the, one of the just like the best, even though it's not a superhero show, it's the best superhero show I've ever seen outside of something else I'm going to talk about later. Live action. Yeah, yeah, it's the best live action superhero show. Let's let's say that. Where, you know, Angel is, he's, if you know absolutely nothing about Buffy or Angel, which is probably unlikely, but I'll just, like, recap it here. Angel is, he's a vampire who has his human soul restored to him, so in this mythology when you become a vampire, basically your soul leaves and you get sort of inhabited by a demon... And then, like, Buffy is a vampire slayer, where she has sort of, like, superpowers and kills vampires. But Angel's a good vampire, so she doesn't kill him. But then he becomes evil, and then, like, all that shit. But so then, after season three of Buffy, they decided to split it off. They had Angel moves to, uh, L.A. to get the fuck away from Buffy. It's, it's all that shit. Like, he had a relationship with Buffy, and then he tried to eat her, and it's like, oh, whatever. So he moves to L.A., some of the other characters from uh, Buffy move to L.A., also uh, Cordelia and Wesley, and they eventually joined the Angel cast, and basically, while Buffy continues doing her shit off of going into college and stuff, Angel moves to L.A., and he sort of becomes a supernatural crime fighter, where he, he sets up a detective agency with this one Irish character, I can't remember what his name is, but he dies like halfway through season one, and... Like, and he basically goes around and he just helps people. And, like, the entire show is basically, other than they change the format, then one of the good things about the show is that they constantly are changing the format every single season. But sort of the current thread and what drives most of the episodes is Angel being, and his company being, hired by people to solve these supernatural whatever is going on. And he fights vampires, he fights demons, he just kind of solves people's problems that have this these supernatural bent to them. And sort of the main theme of the episode, uh, the main theme of the show is that you can't, you like just being good, like doing this one big good thing doesn't like fix stuff. You can't fix the world by just you know killing the dragon. You know that like doesn't that doesn't work. That's that's not how that works. What you have to do is constantly be doing little good deeds and dedicating your life to doing good things all the time. It is super hard work. It is something that almost nobody can do, and that's what Angel is about. It's about just constantly trying to do the little good thing and a lot of th- in like in one of the biggest things in Angel I can't spoil this stuff, but there's like he gets this decision, I think it's about season three, of trying to like take sort of like I guess where you see this easy way out of getting a lot of power or like to keep on doing what he does. And he makes and actually it's kind of ambiguous whether or not the choice he makes there is the right one. And in the Angel constantly sort of asking those questions and looking at that in a much more mature way than most things do of like, you know, just trying to like defeat the evil. Because that is literally what Angel is doing is he's the primary antagonist of the series is a law firm called Wolfram Hart, which is actually, it's basically run by Satan. Like, like Wolfram and Hart is actually this sort of satanic law firm that is sort of law firm that is manipulating the world, manipulating the scenes, like the stuff behind the scenes in L.A. And so that's, Angel's trying to fight sort of evil itself in a sense and that's one of the really really interesting things about the show and I can't so i can't get the spoilers i guess i'll say one of the other things that i really love about the show is it brings back uh, cast members from buffy like i said uh, uh, wesley and cordelia those characters come in and cordelia and wesley in when they were on buffy like the two most, use, particularly Cordelia, the most useless, annoying fucking characters I think I've ever been subjected to. Wesley was wondering. also
0: in one episode. Yeah, yeah. Wesley
1: Wesley was not there for a lot, but he, he was still, when he was there, he was kind of pointless. He, you know, he was kind of there to just serve this story arc function, but he wasn't much of a character. And Cordelia just had absolutely no fucking reason to be in Buffy at all. They, they tried to give her some reason by getting her in a relationship with Xander. That made no sense for those characters. And then after that, they're like, we're going to kick this character off onto Angel. And then Angel then proceeded to make her one of the most interesting characters in the entire mythology, making her one of the most developed characters because, you know, she goes from being this really rich sort of, you know, teenage high school girl when she was fucking living in, what is it, Sunnydale? Sunnydale. Sunnydale. And then when she moves to L.A., she's got, like, nothing. And so she's, like, Angel sort of, like, takes her in like she works for with Angel at their investigation agency. And they, like, the story, like, the character arc for that character is so interesting, and they do so much with her. Then when Wesley comes in, they make Wesley one of the most badass fucking characters I've ever seen on TV. Which, if you see Wesley when he's on Buffy, he's the wimpiest, just, you know, like, you can look at the dude, and the dude would break down crying as you glared at him for, like, two seconds. That's the kind of guy he was on Buffy. They make him into, like, this kick-ass fucking demon hunter... They have uh, Gun and Fred, Fred uh, Winifred played by Amy Acker, the two original characters on Angel that sort of become the recurring cast members. They are also absolutely fantastic. And again, one of the best things about the show is that each season, the show sort of reinvents itself. Usually it keeps keeps like, the same characters and everything, sort of the same themes, but it keeps on doing new things with it. Like, they, like you don't have... like In season five, those characters are in completely different places, both in terms of like, their character arcs, and then physically they tend to move through sets a lot and and something that I really like that you don't just have, like, you know, this is, like, the set that, like, everybody always keeps on coming back to that's, like, sort of standard for almost every single television show. It's, like, Angel just, like, keeps on moving through offices, like, moving into new places, getting to new spots in his life and it's just absolutely fantastic. And then one of the most interesting things about Angel is that it was canceled in its fifth season and they had no idea that it was going to be canceled at all. They, like... We're actually pretty sure it was going to get
0: renewed. Because like, it was a very yeah. huge hit for the WB. Yeah. And
1: there you can you there's there's a lot of stuff, like stories about why it got cancelled and stuff that you can look up if you it, want.
0: It basically boils down to the head of the network being a petty asshole. Yeah.
1: But but anyways, the but the interesting thing is that the finale, the Angel, even though it was not in any way designed to be a finale, it doesn't really wrap stuff up, I guess. I, but it works so fucking well. It is such a good finale for that show, even though you know it's like just the last line of the show is Angels just saying "Let's get to work." Perfectly sums up everything about that show, and then just not even the last episode, but like the preceding episode, also fucking great. Like it is almost in, it's like the, the preceding episode is like if you took the baptism scene from The Godfather, you know, where it's like the, uh, Michael is baptizing the one kid, and it's like that montage of them killing all the heads of the other families. It's like that if that was like an entire episode of TV show, it's fucking awesome. Like, the last season of Angel gets fucking crazy. They do so much stuff with characters. That but
0: doesn't Spike come back in Angel? Yeah, yeah.
1: Spike's in there a lot. Spike's awesome. Even, like, if you can't spoil stuff. But he's, he's... It's interesting how they bring him back in season five, because of the way he's used in the last season of Buffy. You wouldn't think they'd be able to use that character again. But I, I so know what happens. Stuff. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe people listening. Right. So anyway, so anyways, Angel superior to Buffy. Both the character Angel is superior to the Buffy character, but then also the show Angel is superior to the show Buffy.
0: Sound very sexist, right now, Sean?
1: It has nothing no, to no, be- no, no, do with. No. Why did you have to bring sex into it? This is not about gender at all. You are the sexist one, my friend. You are the sexist one.
0: I, I just wanted to set you off. Oh, that was funny.
1: But anyways, yeah. I all think right. Angel, the my number five favorite show. So I'm constantly surprised that you have
0: not watched because it's just it's it's tough because I have not finished Buffy. I feel like I need to finally someday go back and finish the seventh season of Buffy, which is kind of rough. And uh, and then Angel, I've tried to start a couple times, and it doesn't. You know, Angel does not start off great.
1: Yeah, yeah, the first few episodes of Angel are not fantastic.
0: Yeah. But uh, they're not bad, though, so I yeah. one day I'll get into them, but I need to set, a, set aside a chunk of time yeah. and do that. One of the more
1: interesting things about Buffy and Angel <laughs> is that I watched both of those shows sort of at the same time because I watched them after they were all finished airing. And so how I watched them was I had to I went online and found, like, a episode viewing order. So, like, after the third season of Buffy, I sort of watched them sort of concurrently to, like, making sure that I... Because there were quite a few crossover episodes... So I watched watch, like, the episode of, like, like suggesting, like, when Willis says, oh, I'm going to go to L.A. for, like, to do something with Angel, and be like, then the next episode she'd be in L.A. doing something with Angel. And so if you haven't watched Buffy or Angel, and you want to watch both of them, which is a pretty big time commitment, but if you do, that's the kind of the way I'd recommend it, because it was really interesting. Yeah. It also sort of... That's how they aired, too. Yeah. And it makes watching the two shows almost, like, better, because you can kind of take a break from one show and then watch, like, big chunks of the episodes from the other show and sort of go back and forth like that. Yeah. It, I, it sort of, like, makes it more fun to watch, I think.
0: Yeah. All right. So that was, You can go from
1: watching an inferior Buffy episode and then you can watch a superior Angel episode.
0: Isn't that an episode where Angel and his friends become puppets?
1: Yes. That's actually, that's a really good episode. That's what I heard. Yeah.
0: Just want to throw that out there. Like it's
1: better than a musical episode.
0: Okay. Well, in any case, that was Sean's number five show. Yep. Now, in a weird turn of events... Yeah. Which we did... Not want, planned at all. I want to stress that. Not planned at all. We would tell you if it was planned. This was not planned. Somehow, our number four show turned out to be the exact same thing. Yeah. With the exact same philosophy behind it in that it's multiple shows. Yeah. And this is Dragon Ball. Dragon Ball. Dun, 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 stop. Okay. Stop. stop <laughs> And, by Dragon Ball, we are, of course, referring to Dragon Ball Z, which is the more popular, like, famous, you know, second half of the series, but also Dragon Ball, which people often incorrectly call a prequel. (laughs) Fuck you. It's not a goddamn prequel. It came first. Yeah. It's just one. That would be the weirdest if
1: that if Dragon Ball Z had been made first, and then they made a prequel, and Dragon Ball was the prequel to Dragon Ball Z. That'd be fucking weird. What well, I don't get is like, how would you do, like? How would that show be like that if that was the case?
0: What I want to know is try watching Dragon Ball Z from the start, knowing nothing else about the series, and see if you can follow it because you can't. Yeah. There's other. There's, yeah. there's 150 episodes. To be
1: fair, that is more or less what I did, but I was also like seven years old when I yeah, did that, yeah. so it's a lot easier. But
0: right. Well, and, and Dragon Ball Z in its original form, you know, a lot of the filler help to tell you who honey yeah. like, is Yamcha they, they've made an but, effort also
1: to but, be fair in Dragon Ball Z it's not all that important who those guys are
0: no but they are at their most important in Z at the beginning of the series yeah but exactly. anyway so Dragon Ball this is our number 4 we'll talk about it together yeah so <laughs> yeah this is, going to be, this is going to be kind of a hard one because Dragon Ball's a long show there are 153 episodes of Dragon Ball 291 episodes of Dragon Ball Z 64 Four episodes of Dragon Ball GT. If you want to count it,
1: yeah, can
0: or cannot. I think it's, it's fine. Yeah, Whatever. but
1: personally, that is not that did not count into my putting no. it on my list.
0: No, although I I own the whole series anyway. But let's yeah. So so that's sort of what we're talking about. That's that's basically 500 episodes all combined. Yeah, and um, I don't even know where to start this conversation. Maybe, Maybe just either. what is what is our history with the series? Because you and I come to it from yeah different from directions.
1: completely different places, which is kind of weird.
0: Yeah. So, you, why don't you start?
1: Okay, so for me,
0: Dragon Ball Z, as far as I can
1: recall, is the first anime I've ever watched. It's the first anime like most of my friends watched, and I watched it all the fucking time, and I got introduced to it by watching it on Toonami late at night on Cartoon Network, which is how I watched most of the best shows when I was a kid. I watched, like The anime that I watched when I was a kid was like Yu Yu Hakusho, Dragon Ball Z, uh, Rony Kenshin, and it was all on Toonami. Toonami was fucking awesome back in the day. I don't know what's happened to Cartoon Network anymore. Cartoon Network was a great channel.
0: They don't show cartoons all the time, which so what's yeah. weird.
1: Yeah. But anyway, so that's how I started watching Dragon Ball Z. I, like, the first... If you know anything about Dragon Ball Z, I probably started watching it around the time after Goku dies fighting Raditz. Spoiler. <laughs> it's okay. He, it's When he was on Snake Way, Is that's around the time when I first started watching it, and then I basically watched it, it was like every single Friday night, then on for until they stopped showing it. Yeah. Which, fucking, like, years and years and years later. So I watched lots and lots of Dragon Ball Z. And then also, at some point in that time, Cartoon Network also started showing the original Dragon Ball anime. And all this was dubbed, by the way. And so, my, I'm coming from it. Like, I've actually seen significant portions of the original Dragon Ball anime uh, with the original Japanese. I've seen almost none of Dragon Ball Z because I just can't... Adult Goku just sounds weird to me. The adult Goku... Goku is voiced by a girl... Goku is not a female character. Works really well okay. for me. when, Like, okay. I get with you, This that's how you experience it. Works perfectly. I think it's a, like a perfect voice okay. when Goku's a kid. I, it's just like, it sounds really weird to me when Goku's a guy. Like a full adult male. Like, she's just the voice slightly, but nowhere near enough for me personally. You know,
0: then You're shitting I, on Masako Nozawa, man. I, I don't care. I don't like her performance as adult Goku. I'm not ashamed to say that. Okay, well, you're wrong. This is as wrong as you talking about... As you saying that, like, the Kirk versus Picard thing, that is fucking wrong. Dragon Ball z sucks. I'm not... Mosko Nozawa is a genius. I'm not saying that. She's 78 years old. Don't you fucking insult one of the greatest seiyu of all time. It's not... Fucking bastard. To be fair, it's not her
1: fault. I don't think any female person could voice the adult Goku and
0: I would be able to buy it. Like, it's just... And I he's think a sh- fucking, he's a fucking—he's an adult guy. And I for think, for sh- me personally, and I want to point out, Sean Shemmel and everyone else in the dub is awful in the original dub of Dragon Ball Z. In
1: the original dub, I awful, extreme. I think I think they are they are okay. Like there are awful dubs. The original Dragon Ball Z dub is
0: not an awful dub. I disagree strongly, but yeah, I th- I th- they awful. misinterpret every single character almost completely, and. But, they changed but their all the new start-
1: interpretations are not awful.
0: That's, okay.
1: For me, at least. Like, that's how the, that's the way yeah. I watched the show originally. That's fine. It's the way I fell in love with the show. That's the way most Americans watch the show. That's the way all my fam- friends watch the show and kind of fell in love with the show. And so, yeah, I watched... And then I was, I've also watched significant portions of Dragon Ball GT. I've definitely watched every single episode of Dragon Ball Z. Most likely every single one, multiple times. I've certainly seen most of them multiple times, if not all of them.
0: So... I've watched That may be difficult so though because over the years. They didn't they didn't air the first 64 episodes uncut until the later 2000s like 2005 6. Dude, I've seen those. Okay.
1: I've I've seen a lot of Dragon Ball Z. Okay. is what I'm saying also when they re-aired the they did like a thing where they recut it together and did Kai and sort of used the more traditional like manga the manga style pacing as opposed to having all the filler that was in the original anime. I watched that, mostly for the new dub, which is a lot better there.
0: I agree. So that is really, a really, dub. really good dub. I wouldn't say really, really good, but it's... It's so a bad. really,
1: really good dub. For dubs of anime, it's really good. I think it's good. I don't... It's really good. Okay. For dubs of anime, it's really good. I've, I'm pretty sure I've watched more anime dubs than you have, Jonathan.
0: I think that's fine. I think that... Oh, well, you're saying four... Dub... Okay. I... You're, you're, you're speaking in relatives, though. And I think I've—I don't know—I feel like I've heard dubs that are so vastly superior to that from anime shows, just from the limited anime dubs I've watched. I would not call that really, 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 really good. I film. would
1: call it really, really, really good. Okay, that's really, really, really good. Anyways,
0: so it's that's not, not a—it's not a flaming train wreck. I will give it that.
1: <laughs> this podcast is turning into a flaming train wreck. I shouldn't have put Dragon Ball out of here. I shouldn't have done this. This was a mistake. You I start, knew we would get sh- into this.
0: first thing you say, you're shitting on Masako Nozaro. Why would you do that? Because
1: her voice doesn't... It's like fucking in the English dub of Naruto. They kept the same woman trying to do the teenage voice of Naruto. God, she she so wrong could on not this. do that. She, she could just, not do
0: that voice. Okay, but she could not... You don't like the voice. You don't like. That I don't it's there. think it
1: fits the character because it fucking. That sounds weird to me that that voice is coming out. of that character. That's different
0: than not being able to do it. She's like her performance
1: a... is good. Her perform. I'm not okay. saying her performance is bad, but the voice doesn't fit. The voice has to fit, or okay. else the performance at a certain point doesn't matter all that much all right. to me. If I can't buy the voice coming out of the character, that's why I can't get past that point.
0: Okay, that's
1: what I'm saying. I will.
0: I now. Dudes I... Are dudes? Ladies
1: are ladies. That's what I'm saying.
0: Okay. In any case, I will let you finish what you're saying because now I feel rude for interrupting you. Yeah. So why don't you I mean, keep fuck going? No, and... Fuck
1: you! Fuck you! You talk about your your sacred. This is the purest experience for Dragon Ball Z. This is the only way you can like it. Go, go ahead. Go. I
0: don't think it's the only, and I actually want to pause. This is It's not the only way you can like it. No, no, fuck I don't you, want to. Fuck you!
1: You know, Sean Chamel, Christopher Sabat, they should all kill themselves. Funimation should burn in a giant that. fire. I've it's, never there expressed there. that. I
0: don't think that. No, I think go it's... ahead.
1: Go ahead. Fuck you. Go ahead.
0: I, res- I respect the hell out of Funimation for bringing the show over here in good quality several times over the years. Go ahead, no. go, go
1: talk about go talk about your Dragon Ball Z.
0: Go. I, now I feel bad. I feel like I hurt your
1: feelings. Go. I'm sorry. Go. You go ahead and talk Fuck about you. it. No, you go. You go. Go, goddammit. it. Talk about Dragon Ball Z. Go.
0: Okay. Anyway, I obviously, as you can tell, came to the series from a different direction than Sean. Yes. Okay. I um I started really with the manga when it was being published in Weekly Shonen or monthly Shonen Jump over here. Um, kind of fell in love with it that way, wound up buying, started watching the anime. It was I'm sure it was on Cartoon Network, but I never really watched it there. I did later on when they re-aired the first two seasons of uh where they had the the first half, the first the, the whole sign on the first half of the Nomic arc is what they did when they re-aired it on cut um, in like 2005, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay, saw it that way. That's the most significant part of the dub I've watched. Um, Anyway, but that was after I'd seen other parts of it because they were releasing the series on DVD. um, You know, they they did like volume by volume, same thing as like Full Metal Alchemist we were talking about, where it was really tough to because here's the thing: Full Metal Alchemist is fifty episodes. You just buy the thirteen volumes, and it's easy to get your head around. There must be hundreds of Dragon Ball Z DVDs just to get all those episodes. Not hundreds because there's only two hundred ninety one episodes, but. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. Yeah. Because they did, like, just three-episode discs. So, and I think the first one I bought... Because, see, I started reading the manga in the Cell Arc, so started watching the anime in the Cell Arc, and, um, I, you know, I think I, I originally, like, watched them probably dub, like, those episodes on those discs because that's what they defaulted to, then I discovered, you know, they had the Japanese track on there. I thought that was cool. I mean, that was actually still kind of a fresh idea at the time, was having both and having them the uncut and all that. So I started watching it that way. I immediately gravitated towards the Japanese voices in the original version because, I mean, the first thing you notice when you would watch them that way, because I would every volume I bought, I would watch them once in both versions, is that they changed so much in the English version for like story points and character points and all these other things and I just I liked the Japanese version was closer to the translated manga I'd been reading I liked that more I just thought it was more natural I liked the I liked the music I liked the character voices and stuff so that's just kind of where I gravitated with it and um yeah I have eventually picked up the series in several forms over the years um I've owned the entire series twice and the first time was when they put out Funimation put out the uh the season sets the orange bricks where they cropped yeah. it and made it look like shit um, those, those were terrible but they were the only way to own the series complete. like those first like 60 episodes was the only uncut release of those yeah. in English word I think that's the first time they also were able to use their cast and go back and re-dub those parts mm-hmm. that they had not done before so I owned them like that and then they released what's really cool is the dragon boxes which are no longer available which is too bad because that was the only like high quality way to watch the original series um But they were basically, the Japanese Dragon Boxes was a complete 291 episode release where they would remastered it really, really well. They put those out in English and what was really, or in in America, what was really nice is they default to Japanese, have the really good subtitles on there. They're really nice releases, I like those. So that's kind of how I've watched, I've watched, you know, the whole series like that. Uh, Original Dragon Ball, Nosy, have not watched a ton of that anime, although I own it all. One day I'm going to sit down and watch it all, but I've read that part of the manga over and over and over, I love that part. Um so I know that whole part and I've I've watched the parts that I like the most. But um I love Dragon Ball and I'm passionate about the voices because that's the number one thing I, I that draws me to the anime version is I think the Japanese cast that's just one of the best voice casts ever assembled and I think they all do just phenomenal work across the board. Masako Nozawa is just incredible as Goku in either form. Love her to death and uh you know to me it, you know it's it's, it's, just, it's I just, I love that voice. I love Mayumi Tanaka as, as Kuririn. Uh, Ryo Horikawa as Vegeta is so great. Um, we've got so many great voices. Ryusei Nakao as, as who's, his Frieza is just fucking phenomenal. And that's actually, you talked about the Kai dub. That's yeah. the best part of the Kai dub is when they get a real guy, like a real Frieza voice. Yeah, no, the
1: guy who does the Frieza voice in the Kai dub is fucking awesome. I think his name's Chris Young. Yeah, something, something like
0: that. Right. And he basically, he imitates Ryusei Nakao, which kind of back to the Japanese style of Frieza being a very kind of quietly intimidating villain a lot of the time. Yeah. And having this sort of alien kind of voice, but it's still very relatable. And like, you, what's creepy is that it's like a voice you could kind of hear coming out of a person, but coming out of that, it's really interesting. Um, so, but so many great voices across the board. I mean, uh, Ryo Furukawa is... As um, not Ryo, I forget his first name, but Furukawa as, as Piccolo uh, Junior is so great, so great throughout the series, and I just, I just, I, th- I love those voices, and I think it's such a well, well done anime. Love the story. It's, it's sort of we were just touching on sort of our histories with the series. Yeah. With it's, it would be, it's going to be so tough to talk about the series as a whole because there's what happens in Dragon Ball. It's a long series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. But, yeah, yeah. What do you want to talk about? Fuck
1: you. That's what I wanted to talk
0: about. Okay, so Dragon Ball
1: Z, let's go. Start. How how do you want to talk about the show as a whole? I don't know, I I think... Try to keep it as brief as possible, but...
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I love... I I, I think it's, to me, I mean, it's a really well-animated show. It's obviously they've got good and bad animation days, Mm -hmm. because they would, especially one of the weird things about Kai you can really tell that because Kai cuts multiple episodes together yeah. and it looks super awkward at times because they shouldn't be cut together like that because like different, obviously different animation companies would contract out the different episodes. Mm-hmm. And um, But anyway, when it's at its best, I think it's a beautifully drawn anime because Akira Toriyama is a really great artist, very, very minimalist in how he does things but it looks wonderful and in, in full color in the anime and movement. The show always has great movement. Fight scenes are always well done and um, characters, I mean all the character designs are so iconic and colorful and just really thoughtfully done, and and I love all of that stuff. I love how the art style like evolves from the like first episode of Dragon Ball to the end of Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, it's always very organic in how mm-hmm. it changes. And I just it's really great. Love that element of it. But to me, and, and I think the stories are always really really good. And they're, they, Toriyama just comes up with stories that you know, he he kind of writes by the seat of his pants. And you kind of, that's how you watch the series at a certain point, because yeah. he, he very much gets that element of just sort of things just happening and, and happening on the fly. Works really well in Dragon Ball in, in any form you watch it. And, um, you know, Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, all throughout the series. Um, there are certain points I like less than other points, but all the four major Z arcs I like a lot. Um, like most of the stuff in the original Dragon Ball. But to me, I think it, it just uh, comes down to the characters, which I think the cast of characters is so great. That's what makes it such a fun show to watch.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then also, you know, obviously, especially over here, I think for when I was a kid, with Dragon Ball Z, like, the action style of Dragon Ball Z was sort of a revelation. It still kind of is the way... it's. There's something that seems so natural about having those characters where, you know, obviously uh, over the course of the series they become more and more sort of superpowered in a sense where they're flying, shooting blasts, energy blasts from their hands and stuff like that. And if there's something weirdly so natural about that fighting, those fighting scenes, and then it's like, even though they're, like, over the top and completely ridiculous, you never think about how, like, how the fuck did they shoot laser beam things from their hands, or whatever the fuck you would call those. Like, that doesn't make any sense. That shouldn't just seem like, yeah, okay, like, you just accept that. Like, the minute, because, you know, there's no, especially when you're you're a kid and you're watching with Z, there's no exposition that explains at any point what the fuck a Kamehameha is, how he is able to do it, like, what is the... Like, no need... There's nothing, none of that. Like, you don't need... Because if you're watching it from Z, you don't even get to the point where you you don't get to see when he, Goku learns how to do the Kamehameha. So he just fucking pulls it out of well, nowhere.
0: Of course, he kind of pulls... It's kind of a great thing, because there's, there's some exposition in the original Dragon Ball, but he still kind of pulls it out of nowhere. Yeah, actually.
1: yeah. He still kind of pulls it out of nowhere. Yeah. But it's just like, you immediately accept it. And it's just like, you immediately accept that, like, that style of super hyper... Like, martial arts fighting is, like, the only way to describe it, where they're flying, punching dudes through mountains, moving so fast you can't see them, and that sort of, like, defines anime action to me. Like, every anime action scene always, like, takes... Dragon Ball Z fight beats of, like, yeah, you know, yeah. the dude moves so fast you can't see him, and then you look around and it's like, where is he? And he's either below you or above you every single time. Yeah. And you're always looking around, you never look down or you never look up, and he's one of those, he's either going to fucking punch his hand through the dirt and grab you and pull you down, or he's going to come and fucking hit you from the above. It's every single time.
0: It's, it's you know, it's definitely the father show of, of modern shonen anime. Yeah,
1: definitely. and
0: Which is funny because... What most, and I think this is why I prefer Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z to a lot of other anime in this vein, is that it, you know, shonen anime kind of stripped out the other parts to make Dragon Ball so good. I think they got wound up having simpler stories, or or less humor, or less character development, and got more and more focused on action. Whereas action is a big part of Dragon Ball, but where the focus is is really on the characters and their relationships, and not 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 romantic. Toriyama hated writing romance. Obviously, you don't get a lot of that in the series. But you know, on on those interrelations, on sort of this sort of strategy behind a lot of the stories, the Namak arc is a, is a really good example of that. Where yeah. there are you know the whole story, is sort of this like guerrilla warfare, trying to find the Dragon Balls, and it winds up the fights are actually sort of intermittent in that one yeah. until you get to the end where Frieza and Goku do it out it's just like this
1: huge. It's not even that because it's also then Frieza has to go through like all like what
0: four Frieza's forms. a yeah, yeah. like Long string of very awesome fights. Yes. Yeah. And. <laughs> And so I, I, and I think that's, that's what makes Dragon Ball still kind of the best of these kinds of shows. Yeah. It has these stories that are fairly in-depth, and it's got a lot of humor. I think that's one of the main things. Yeah, Toriyama, really funny. Toriyama was a gag manga artist originally. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, like in the, if you, when
1: you watch the original Dragon Ball, particularly the beginning of the original Dragon Ball, it is basically a comedy. Like it's, it's totally it's, a comedy, it's yeah. Got, it's, it's got some of the more dramatic elements to it, but its main focus is it's funny. Yeah
0: and it gets more dramatic as it goes along but it always keeps this sort of lighter edge to it and that's what that's what actually separates dragon ball and dragon ball z whatever toriyama wrote from maybe some of gt and some of the movies things that he did not have his direct hand in where just that kind of that tone yeah. is so precise yeah, all the time definitely
1: yeah it is you can definitely tell when like even like knowing nothing about like the manga or anything of that when you yeah. when you see something that is very obviously like like, the movies or GT, and you just see it for, like, a second, you know the tone is just wrong. Yeah, it's yeah. not Dragon Ball.
0: Right. And That's actually why people are so excited for the new movie that's coming out on March 30th, Dragon Ball Z: Battle of Gods, because Toriyama had a huge hand in it, and that's what I've heard from early screenings, is that it gets that tone. That's the number one thing it just it gets, because Toriyama really did work with them on it. Yeah. Which is really, it sounds really special to me. But, yeah. So... So many so many good stories and things like that. And I mean, what was it like watching it, like, sort of week to week as, as a kid with these things going on?
1: It was really fucking cool. Yeah. It was really fucking cool. Because, yeah. I again, like, it, it's just weird for me to, like, when, now that I'm, you know, an adult and I think back on that stuff, it's weird how just, like, for granted, I took everything in Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. You know, like, you just, like, you just yell and you're stronger and your hair gets yellow. It's just, like... That makes no. That makes no fucking sense. The Super Saiyan stuff. What the fuck is that? That makes no sense. Why is his hair all spiky and yellow now? But it's so fucking cool. Yes. And whenever Dragon Ball Z just like goes insane and it doesn't make any sense, it's so cool that you like immediately don't give a shit that it doesn't make any sense. It's so awesome that it just overpowers your lot like the logical part of your brain. You're like, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, fuck yeah, whatever, fuck yeah. And that's what it was like if if I had. If I had known when I was like seven years old to just use the phrase fuck yeah to describe Dragon Ball Z, that is exactly what I would have done.
0: And I think it also helps that you are always constantly invested in the characters on yeah. screen. Yeah. And so when Goku goes Super Saiyan, in addition to there being, you know, there's a lack of literal logic to that, <laughs> yeah. but there's this heavy emotional logic yeah, to that at that point. just
1: blew the fuck up.
0: Really did. I mean, I love how they animate that in the anime too, because they fucking hammer it home. Where he like expands, contracts, and then expands again. Yeah, and just blows up.
1: And then there's like, then there's like this big ball of dust. And then if you look closely, there's like little line, of line like red lines falling down. And it's like, eh. <laughs> it blew the fuck up. That's pretty cold, Frieza. It's yeah, a fucked up thing to do. Yeah. Oh no, how Frieza? What? I don't know how Frieza can just do that. I don't know why Frieza doesn't do that to everybody, but yeah, whatever. Why isn't that a move in Dragon Ball Z video games? Just Freezes just automatically wins, blow that motherfucker up. Never explain. That's
0: always something they have to keep a mind on in Dragon Ball video games, is if they gave the characters their actual abilities in the show, it would be the most unbalanced fighter. Yeah. And it's already exactly. pretty unbalanced. Yeah,
1: it's like you throw fucking like Super Saiyan three Goku against like like the five year old <laughs> Gohan or something, it's like a- Oh Jesus, dude!
0: Yeah. What so, is, what are you doing? I think it's also the a cool thing to talk about with it is just there's sort of this sense of in, in, in going off the tone we talked about the sort of world of Dragon Ball that builds yeah. over time just feels so. I mean, the logic problems don't like matter much because yeah. it is so clearly another world, mm-hmm. and it's just I love the amount of detail in it, especially Toriyama's vision of the afterlife. Yeah, it's brilliant. Where it's just a massive bureaucracy. Yeah. I love it. It's and it's it's like. And I just love the visual
1: of all the souls waiting in like this massive line, you know, like up yeah. there at Disneyland. It's pretty great.
0: Yep. And hell is just—it's not a bad place. It's just kind of boring. That's, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And just things like that that work so well. Um, the the whole god hierarchy is really cool to to look at in the series. And it's just so fun to dive into. And I love—I just love being part of the fan community of Dragon Ball these days. If you haven't visited the website Shu. Those guys are killing it. They are like the cool... Like, just they know fucking everything about Dragon Ball. They have lots of resources. You can read anything you want to know about the series. You can find on their fan site, their website, which is just full of information and guides and all these other cool things. They, and they, they bring all the news from Japan because they have actual, you know, staff members who read Japanese, taught, speak Japanese. So you can get all that news. And there's the cool forums. They have a great podcast. And that kind of is a testament to me of how well Dragon Ball works is that their podcast is going on like 350 episodes. And you can do that with Dragon Ball. You can really get into it, and it's fun because that world is so rich. Yeah. And there's a lot of story.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't stop. Even though the no. series is over, it never, never stops. stops. It will so it'll be a sad day when like, they, you know, they put the cap on Dragon Ball. It's just like, we've wronged absolutely everything out of this series that we possibly can. No more video games, no more action figures, just nothing.
0: So what's your favorite part of the series?
1: Like, the favorite, like, sort of story section, I guess, would be uh, the Saiyan arc, like, Goku versus Vegeta. I think, even though I really appreciate, like, how fucking ridiculously over the top it gets, and I guess I would even extend that all the way out to the Frieza stuff. Yeah. Like, that whole first section, because I like, it's relatively grounded, like, you have this, like, you have this conception of, like, how powerful Goku is in relation to these other people, and it's like, you kind of know that in the you know, the power level, whatever, kind of thing, like, it makes sense, like, you know, okay, Goku's, like, Vegeta's, like, this strong, Goku's, like, this strong, like, Nappa's, like, this strong, I get that, and then, like, ratches up slowly, 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 until you have Goku going Super Saiyan, fighting Frieza in Frieza's final form, and they're, like, basically blowing up the fucking planet, it's like, you, there's, you have this nice scale of, like, that's how powerful these fucking people are at this point, and then past that point, while I still really like the stories, I think one of my favorite characters in the whole show is Trunks, and I really like that sort of like future time travel aspect of the subsequent story arc, I think like the scale of the fights no longer can make sense anymore because Earth should be blowing up. You know, like when Gohan goes Super Saiyan two, like this power does not scale appropriately for that to that level. Yeah, and it's and it's always something like it like it couldn't possibly, but it's always something that sort of disappoints me in the series. It's okay. like I wish like that could like like the power could scale to the point where it needs to be where they're like just blowing up fucking universes at some point.
0: That would be... That would be crazy. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, you couldn't do it realistically, but it's like... That's like it's... They just... Yeah. Like, Toriyama just sort of wrote himself into a corner with how powerful the characters got. Like, right. They obviously have to keep on getting more powerful, but you don't feel how more powerful they are in the series, I guess.
0: Yeah. I guess you you get to a little bit of that in the blue arc when Earth gets destroyed and they're yeah. fighting in space. And yeah. yeah, you
1: get a little bit of it, yeah. But... but yeah, again, right. But when he's Super Saiyan 3, that's when he should be blowing up universes. Like, at right. that point, when he's that much more powerful, it's like... Dude, like, you, compared to how much more powerful Super Saiyan 1 Goku is against, like, just normal Goku, Super Saiyan 3 Goku, you're, like, you're so great Superman, dude. You're, like, dragging galaxies on a fucking chain across the universe. Like, yeah. that's
0: how strong you should be. Um, I God, what's my favorite part of the series? This is this is a tough one for me. Yeah. I love the sign arc. I've seen it, like, ten fucking times, because whenever I sit down to watch Dragon Ball Z, I'm not going to start from, like, episode 50. Yeah, I'm going to start not. from episode one. And, and so I've seen those first, like, 35 episodes of Dragon Ball Z over and over again, and they yeah. always hold up. They're really good. Yeah, I yeah, love that really part. Yeah, fucking good. Yeah, that's a really great part, and that's a part that just really mixes drama and sort of the lightheartedness really well, because the stakes are really high. Yeah. And there's, there's this time limit, and it just, it's really propulsive, works really well. People and, are dropping,
1: like, fucking flies. And like, I
0: think the entire, once, I think that part is so well-paced when Goku gets, it's starting to come back, but everyone else has to hold off Nappa yeah. and Vegeta first, and they're just they're dying, dropping like flies, yeah. as you said. And you know, Piccolo sacrifices himself for Gohan, which pays off this really wonderful arc between yeah. those two. And then when Goku gets back, th- that episode when he comes back and just starts dishing out justice on yeah. Nappa and, and his and that look on his face when he just realizes what's happened, yeah. and he's like, "Don't worry, guys, I've got this." It's it's wonderful and uh, and then the fight with vegeta is some of the best animation in the series the episode where they both he fires his kamehameha vegeta yeah. fires his big blast yeah. and they just that standoff is incredible that's a great part of the series i also love from the original dragon ball if we want to give that series a little love I love both the twenty second and twenty third Tenkaichi Budokai tournaments. Those are two wonderful, fantastic arcs. The twenty second is the one where we meet Tenshinhan, and there's that yeah. rivalry there. That's really, really good, especially because that one has this fight that I think is really underrated in the series. It's one of my two or three favorites, and it's between Kurudin and Goku at the twenty second Tenkaichi Budokai. Yeah, that's a really good one. And it kind of culminates. It's like kind of the culmination of their friendship, where they get near the final round together, and. You kind of know in the back of your mind Goku is going to have to win because he's the main character. Yeah. But they actually this is still at a point where Kuririn can actually fight him and yeah. really and there really is a challenge there for both of them and that is a great fight. And the and then in the 23rd Budokai, my favorite fight in the whole series is Piccolo Jr. versus um, Goku. That is an incredible yeah. fight. Really in, well yeah,
1: like I was saying, like that is still the point in the show where it's like you can understand how much more like the power of these characters yeah, yeah. because it's been you know, They started off as relatively normal-ish yeah. human beings, You yeah. know, a little exaggerated, but yeah. nobody could fly at that point, right. and so when Goku learns how to fly. It's like,
0: fucking, that's cool. Yeah. That's really fucking cool. But in Z, my favorite arc overall, I think I have to say, is probably the Cell arc, because you get, you get kind of everything that is Dragon Ball in that, because yeah. it moves from villain to villain to villain until you get to Cell, because yeah. you've got two sets of androids, then you've got the the villains, or then you've got Cell in his multiple forms. But it's, just, it's 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 great stuff there, and it I love really the good. the mythology of it is really well done. The story is very complex and really interesting, and you get Future Trunks. Future Trunks is really cool. He's such like, a badass. Like I
1: don't want to in my saying that that was my like the same stuff was my favorite section. Right. I don't want to underrate. No, 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 I, no, no. I, I love that. the Cell stuff too. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, No, and I agree. The, the power scaling it's it's off at that point. There's no denying that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they they train. In the room of spirit and time, where they can live a year and a day and come out yeah. incredibly powerful, so their ages are all off at that point too. Yeah. But you know, it's awesome. It's some I mean, really great actually, character stuff.
1: My favorite fight in the show might actually be when Goku fights uh, Perfect Cell. That's Zelda such character. a great fight. Yeah, and I just like how it just ends with Goku being like, "Yeah, no, I'm not going to. I can't beat you, so I'm going to send my kid at you. Like you can beat the shit out of my ten year old son. Go, <laughs> son. Goku <laughs>
0: is a terrible father.
1: Yeah. This is yeah. Yeah.
0: Pretty fucking
1: awful dad. And here, then, here, son. Fight the alien monstrosity. <laughs> go ahead. There you go.
0: Now, while well, on the whole, the Boo arc is my least favorite in Z, my favorite section of the show, and I'm specifically talking about the anime because this is not in the manga. Yeah. It's very, very briefly in the manga. There's seven episodes. It's like episodes 200 to 208, and that is where Gohan becomes the great Saiyaman at Orange Star High School in Satan City. Yeah. And, uh... And it's, it's basically Spider Man via Dragon Ball. Yeah, it is.
1: It's because he's a superhero in high school. There's Videl, who's this girl he kind of has a crush on, kind of.
0: And she's, but, yeah. uh, but I love the spin on that there is that Videl is also a crime fighter. Yeah. And she's really good at what she does. And for humans, she's very powerful. Mm-hmm. And they kind of respect that during this section. And yeah. it's really fun watching them bond. Because even after he stops being the Simon, there's a lot of fun bonding stuff with the two yeah. of them. Their relationship is great. I love how Masako Nozawa plays Gohan. I love the actress who plays Videl. That's one of my favorite anime voices. They're really good together. Lots of good material here. And there's, those, there's some episodes there, like the one where Gohan has to rescue the dinosaur that was his friend way back yeah. in the day. It's just fucking great. I love those episodes. And I'm i am so sad that that's not what that arc was. Yeah. Because that's always my major disappointment is, I wish Goku had stayed dead at the end of the Cell arc. Because I love Goku, but it really felt natural. Like, alright, yeah. it's Gohan's show now. And he's, he stays important for about half that arc, but then... He's gone, and that's... Yeah. that's and then then I love, because then they bring him
1: back again, and you think it's like, oh, Gohan's super badass now, like, he pulled out the Z-Sword, all that shit. He's got the form that nobody knows how to name in all the video games, so he always has a different full name, and it's just like, he's gonna kick the shit out of Boo, and he gets absorbed in, like, three episodes. It's like, and now Goku has to fuse with Vegeta, and, like, now Goku has to take care of business. Like, well, <laughs> Gohan, you have your spotlight again for, like, a little bit, but sorry, man. <laughs> I really like I really like when Gohan, you know, he puts on his dad's gi, and he's like, just like, I'm going to go, I'm going to beat this shit out of this pink motherfucker.
0: Yeah, it's great, and, yeah, it's too bad that it didn't last longer. But yeah. lots of good stuff after that, though. I like all the stuff with Vegito. You know, there's, there's good stuff there. But, anyway. Yeah. And then, of course, the best part of Dragon Ball is GT.
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I think every fan, you know, once Toriyama got, you know, that hack got off the series, and then they made GT, it's like, that's... That's when the series really came into the sun, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, who... The, the ultimate character combination in Dragon Ball is Goku... As a kid. Oh, as a kid. Again. Alternate future Trunks, <laughs> who's really just kind of Trunks with his balls chopped off. Yeah. And Pan.
1: Yeah.
0: Pan. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then they get a robot.
0: Yeah. Giru. Giru, Giru. <laughs> God, GT. I kind of like GT in spite of myself. Yeah, like I think, yeah,
1: like a, I think like, <laughs> GT's not the most horrible thing in the world, but it certainly does not. But that's stand the thing. up to the original
0: series. But when it is the most horrible thing in the world, it's fucking hilarious. Yeah, that's really fun. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, it does not. Yeah, do to is, it's too. really
1: fan fiction-y. Is like
0: the fan oh yeah. you get
1: on GT, and that's yeah,
0: and it kind of was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even a lot of the people who were senior artists and story writers on Z. Left and went off to do other things because they've been working on this the sucker yeah. for ten years. So I'm,
1: like, I'm going to beat the shit out of that pink motherfucker. Yeah, whatever that meant for them personally.
0: Yes. So anyway, I think we've talked enough about Dragon Ball. I think the last thing we should probably note is just this ended up surprisingly high for both of us. Little alone- yeah, exactly. Like
1: I had it rated pretty low. Like I wasn't even sure it was going to be on my list, and then I was thinking about it, it's like. I've watched Dragon Ball so much in my life. Like it is such a huge part of my life personally. I watched it so much when I was a kid, and I always go through a phase every couple of years or so where I'm like, I just have to watch some Dragon Ball Z. Like I just have to do it. I have to get out of my system. I have to to watch like really over the top action and shit. Like I just I need to get that out of my system every couple of years. And it's like this isn't one of those years. If it had been, this might have been number one. Like this would have been this could have been higher if I was in a Dragon Ball mood. But yeah.
0: Yeah. And for me it's like I guess I just was compiling my list and at the desk where I work, next to it I have a big shelf, and it has three shelves. Like the bookcase yeah. has three shelves. Two of those are completely filled with Dragon Ball stuff, so filled that the second shelf I have to stack books on top of books on DVDs on top of DVDs. Then we got stacks on stacks on stacks. Stacks. Yeah. So and I've got like every episode of the anime, all the manga in English, starting to collect the full color versions of the comics in Japanese that are coming out over there at Battle of Gods promotions. It's like, I've spent enough money on this goddamn show.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it deserves to be on the list somewhere. Yeah, yeah, pretty high, too.
0: Pretty high, yeah. So, we love Dragon Ball, and, you know, guess that guess that's our number four show. Yeah. All right, so my number three show.
1: We're in the top three spots now. I know. It's getting intense.
0: Well, speaking of that, this is what I have to intro this show with, is that on part one of this podcast, I noted that You know, for me, um, the top we were we're doing our favorite shows, which is very different than best shows. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's not a qualitative ranking; it's more like the shows we just love the most, kind of instinctually. But what's interesting is the overlap there for me is that my top three shows, in the exact order I have them on here, is exactly how I would also rank the best shows I've ever seen. That's just kind of how it fell out for me. And these three were so clear to me, just my favorite three shows. And as I said, everything else was just I had seven other shows and just had to rank them as closely as I could. Mm-hmm. but this so my number three spot and I, this is really the third best TV show I've ever seen and I this is where we enter the point where for me these TV shows eclipse really any movies I've seen in terms of stuff that I just that I just love and I this just really matters a lot to me and this is the late 1999 slash 2000 short lived TV show Freaks and Geeks created by Judd Apatow and Paul Feig um, if you have not heard of Freaks and Geeks before which you may not have, because, as I said, short-lived, 18 episodes. Yeah. Um, it was, it aired on NBC, I believe, although I, no one watched it on NBC, so I, I oh, it's, yeah. it's a DVD show. And, um, anyway, it, it, like I said, this was sort of the birth of the sort of Judd Apatow phenomenon that we've seen in the last few years. Not just that Judd Apatow worked on this show, although it's really Paul Feig's show, um, but that a lot of the major Apatow actors come from this series, including, you know, uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen and Jason Segel and just a bunch of other sort of players here and there that will come in for an episode or two. And, you know, basically, if you've ever seen one of the Judd Apatow movies, like Knocked Up, 40-Year-Old Virgin, um, this is 40 from last year, those are the movies he's done specifically, but also like, you know, Paul Feig made Bridesmaids, there's uh, the Jason Segel movies like like uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah. Just that style of comedy where it's very funny, but there's this very sad, honest core to it. Yeah. It's very dramatic. Freaks and Geeks is like that, but up the sadness by about 1,000%, and the just emotional turmoil and the psychological drama, just up that by 1,000%, and the comedy's still there, but kind of minimize its importance, because that's Freaks and Geeks is called a comedy. I think it's a drama because it will fuck with you when you watch it, because this is a show about... High school life for a set of characters, and and a set of characters who are specifically outcasts. They're sort of
1: uh, would you call them freaks and geeks?
0: That's sort of the basic division the show makes. Now, I don't think they actually go. You know, there's not like like the gang of characters introduce themselves to you in the pile, like we're the freaks. That's not you know that's not what it so is. Is that some
1: sort of gang war in the high school between the no. freaks and the
0: geeks? The basic idea is that there's sort of there's um, the two main characters are Lindsay and Sam Weir. Lindsay Weir, played by Linda Cardinelli, who is she's like I think a junior in high school in the series or maybe a senior she's she's older she's 17, 18. Mm-hmm. and uh, her brother Sam is just in her high school she's a he's a freshman and um, Sam's friends are sort of who you call the geeks in the show they're younger they're they're very socially awkward they are you know more into the academic side of things but also have no luck with girls or life in general and um, and then the, the freaks are the characters Linda Cardellini winds up uh, like getting with in this show because sort of the premise as we start out in the pilot is that Lindsay, the main character, who is just one of my favorite TV characters of all time. Uh, Lindsay has, her grandmother has recently died, and she's kind of, kind of given up on life. And it's, it's really, really an honest thing that I think will happen to a lot of people in high school, where her first couple years of high school, she tried really hard. Mm-hmm. She was a math elite, as they, is their name for, like, I love that word math elite, because it's like, yeah. you know every school has a dumb name like that for their yeah. math program or something. Yeah. And she, you know, she does all the programs, she's a really high, you know, she gets really good grades. But her grandmother dies, some other stuff happens to her, and she's just kind of given up. She started wearing her dad's old army jacket, and she starts. She decides she wants to hang out with this group of kids who include um, Daniel Desario, played by James Franco, and uh, Ken, played by Seth Rogen, and, and Nick, played by Jason Segel, and they're sort of just... A group of, of, of you know, they, they smoke pot, they don't, they, they cut class They're not, you know, they're not like bad kids, they're not like punks, they're not, yeah. you know, that kind of kid. They just don't really care anymore. They're just a little freaky. Yeah, they're just a little freaky, and she's kind of starting to hang out with them. And basically the show is just kind of an exploration of, I don't even know how to explain it. It's such a tough show to get into, but... A just a basic idea. High school can be hell. High school yeah. can be a really, really, really emotionally trying time because you are trying to figure out your identity. Identity, I think, is the key theme of the show. is figuring out who you are. Um, and 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 high school is painful because you're figuring out your identity in a, in a in a sort of a time period of your life and an environment where it is kind of difficult to suss out what your identity is because there's not a whole lot of freedom in your movements. Yeah. And the show is incredibly, incredibly honest and often really, really painful and tough to watch. I mean, it's just... I, I, I wrote uh, about the series, I think, last summer. I was doing a rewatch of it, and I only got two episode. I think... Oh, how, how far did I get in my like writing about it? I think I got through episode 11 or so. Yeah, 11 was the last one I wrote about. I would like to go back and finish those ana- analysis pieces because it's a show that demands it and deserves it. It's one you, you definitely need to dive into the text of. It's very, very intelligent and very much worth discussion. But And kind of as I wrote in that over and over again, I just was astounded every time I would watch one of these episodes and write about it, just how much it hurt. That these episodes would have humor and they would start in relatively sane places, but they would just get to this point where they just kind of, the characters are beat down and you are beat down, and, and just bad things will happen but they're bad things that happen in very organic ways where all these people you know exist in the world, you maybe know them and it's just tough to watch but it's so honest and it's really, really, really cathartic I think for anyone who's been through some of this shit which if you're an American who went yeah. to high school it's very, very universal. Um, but I think, you know, that's why it was canceled. It was not a show that NBC just wanted a high school comedy. This was not it. This was very challenging. It was fairly controversial when it aired. Um, very low rated obviously because they kind of they just didn't know how to sell it because there was no... I don't think this show could succeed now or even in 10 years. It's just not a show that is is going to be the most popular show about these, this subject matter because it does ask you to invest in people who are going to get hurt time and time again and you're going to get hurt right along with them. And it is just astoundingly written and so well acted. I mean, just sort of the, the birth of sort of modern American comedy in terms of the... Because Apatow is sort of like the most significant figure in that in yeah. theatrical comedy. It's You see this here. And you see all these great actors. I mean, James Franco is one of my, kind of one of my favorite people right now because he's yeah. amazing and crazy. James Franco has never been better than he is in this show where he is playing... Kind of a terrible person, and and there's an episode five is one I specifically remember where Lindsay kind of sinks to her lowest because she, Daniel winds up manipulating him, her into helping him cheat, and and Daniel keeps giving her these stories about how he kind of becomes like the Joker, where he gives her this story, uh, the Joker from the Dark Knight, where he gives her this one story about why he is the way he is, and he's like why he has this tough life. And then he gives the same story but slightly different to the principal when they're in his office, and that's what convinced her to go with Daniel. And the last scene of that show, where she realizes she's just completely fucked because she yeah. helped this horrible human being cheat, and now she's probably going to she could get kicked out of school, who knows, she just breaks down laughing. And it's one of the greatest scenes in the series because... It's, it's a really dark scene, but it's yeah. kind of funny because it's like, she's just like, well, I'm fucked, and just starts laughing. And, and what's great about that is not only is Linda Cardellini brilliant, but James Franco just is unafraid to push that character in, in pretty unlikable directions. Jason Siegel, I also think this is his best performance. I mean, really, anyone who is on this show, this is the best work they've ever done, with the exception of Seth Rogen, who's a very, very minor character. So he obviously went off and did bigger and better things um, for himself. But Linda Cardellini in particular is an actress who, it makes me so sad every time I think of her and that she does not have a huge career and has not won like five different Oscars and Emmys because her role in Freaks and Geeks is one of the very best performances I've ever seen in anything, film, TV, what have you. She is just utterly superior in this show. And I was actually first introduced to her watching ER back in the day when I would watch that because she was on that show for several seasons after Freaks and Geeks. She's really good on that, but ER is no Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. She's so good here, and it's just just a great show. I forgot
1: that ER existed.
0: Like,
1: <laughs> the, I just had that weird moment when you said ER. I'm like, that TV show? That, that was a TV show.
0: And I've, I've seen <laughs> some of that show. I have that feeling sometimes, too. I probably should have put that in my honorable mentions, because I think ER at its best was fucking great. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. ER, for some reason, just maybe it was on just too long, and everyone forgot about it. Yeah, it was <laughs> like just a weird moment. Like, I have to reevaluate my life for a second. Yeah. I had forgotten that. Yeah. So... Yeah, and it's just, it's again, it's a show that you cannot talk about easily, and I think this is what we're going to get into with a bunch of our shows here, is that you <laughs> kind of need yeah. full podcasts for them. Yeah. We'll try our best to do these general overviews. But yeah, Freaks and Geeks, so great, so painful, so cathartic, and I should note, this is another case, like, like even more clearly than Firefly, though, where they got their 18 episodes, and I I've never wanted any more than that, and I think the fans are in the same place, because the finale is, in every sense of the word, a series finale, and one of the best ever made, and... Just, you know, we have this series, and it is great, and it's, you know, I don't think it even, I don't even know if it was designed to go further than 18 episodes. It just, it exists like that, and it's perfect, and sometimes that's what a TV show should be. Just, you know, get in, get out, and do great work. So, that was my number three, which is a short 18 episode. You can really, you just buy the DVDs and you got it, and you watch it. It takes 18 hours. None of my subsequent entries are anything
1: like that. And my third entry is not even a... TV show. My third entry is five TV shows. It is you
0: cheating bastard.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, you, I you, you it. did two for you did Star Trek: The Original Series and Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, and they're in the same universe. And they're yeah, and all of these five TV shows are all in the same universe. Which universe, Sean? The DC animated universe. Well, Bruce Tim sort of back in the day, you know, Batman the animated series. Like, and Warner Brothers wanted to to make a Batman animated series. So they got a bunch of comic book dudes, notably Bruce Timm, who sort of, he's the main director, he does all the character designs for all these shows, made Batman the Animated Series, you know, three seasons, wild critical success, I mean, just absolutely phenomenal cartoon, it's one of the best shows I've ever watched, one of my favorite shows. And this
0: was going to be one yeah. of my honorable mentions, I just wanted to wait to talk about it yeah. until here.
1: And then, while they were doing the third season for Batman, that they sort of, they redesigned the characters to... Also coincide with the character designs of another TV show that they then made, Superman the Animated Series, which t- took place in the same universe. There were some crossover episodes that are actually awesome, the world's finest episodes, who are Batman and Superman team up. Lois Lane gets a huge crush on Batman. It's great. And then they made a Justice League TV show. That's fucking More awesome. More crossovers. Yeah, yeah. Now you've got you got Superman, you got Batman, you've got Green Lantern, Hot Girl, Marshall Hunter, and The Flash all together, kicking ass. Then they made Justice League Unlimited. Which was basically more or less just like the second season, or it might have been the third season to the Justice League show. And Justice League Unlimited was basically, you know, you still had the core Justice League characters from the original show, but then they introduced a whole bunch of, like, basically every episode would focus on, like, other side characters in the DC universe because the Justice League sort of expanded to encompass, you know, like, Green Arrow, Black Canary, The Question, what have you. All those DC heroes were, like, sort of showcased in, in in an episode here or there really awesome then also in that time frame they made Batman Beyond which was sort of I guess a sequel series to the Batman animated series which was you know when Bruce Wayne is an old man Gotham's like in sort of like the cyberpunk future and this kid Terry McGinnis becomes like the new Batman Batman Beyond he has like a new suit more like techie just kind of got a super or a Spider-Man vibe but a little bit darker and that's also set all in the same universe and so I was knew one of these TV shows had to be on my list, but when I sat down, I could not pick one because I love all of these shows so much, and my favorite one might actually be the Justice League show. And I was just like, but I can't just put... Because part of the reason why I love the Justice League show is because I love the Batman and Superman shows so much and expand on what they did with those series. And it's like, I can't just pick one, so I picked all five. And then I just... Put them all on one entry and call it the DC yeah. Animated Universe. So I think it's fair. Yeah, I I hope it's fair. I'm doing I, it whether it is or not. So
0: I the one I've seen here is I've seen all of Batman the Animated Series and it is yeah it's one of my favorite things ever. I love yeah. the hell out of it. It is. That one to me is so fantastic, not just because they have just such great stories and the voice acting is perfect and all these things. It's also one of the most interesting American animated TV series yeah. where I think most American animation on TV just looks like absolute garbage. Yeah. And this was really artistically done. They like did this thing where they would like draw it on black paper. Yeah. It's very gothic. It's really interesting. Yeah, they do a lot
1: with like shadows and silhouettes. Yeah,
0: for the first two seasons. The yeah. third is more the Superman style. It's yeah. not as interesting to me at that point visually, still yeah. just as good story-wise. But it's just... Everything about that show was just really edgy, really well done, did, totally respected its audience, yeah. whether you were a kid or an adult. I've never seen anything else like that on American TV, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming these other four shows yeah. are similar. Yeah, And I just, I love the hell out of that show, and I'd really, I've always wanted to get into definitely the Superman one at the very least, because yeah. I, I think, we've said many times, and, and I firmly believe this, the definitive version of Batman for me will always yeah. be the animated series, Kevin Conroy... Without a doubt. With Mark Hamill, all those people. And I hear the same is true of the Superman show. Yeah, that's, I mean, that
1: is why I love these shows so much is I don't read a lot of DC Comics. Like I've read a lot of comic books, but the vast majority of them are Marvel. Like, I've since read quite a few DC comic books because I do love those characters. But I think the reason why I love those characters are all of these cartoons. And this is the Batman, the Batman the animated series—that is the to me—that is the definitive version of Batman because they incorporate the elements of all the comic books up till then and take sort of like the best bits of them and boil them down into this TV show. It's like the, like basically all of the side characters on there are the best versions of all of those side characters. And then Superman the animated series is exactly the same way. That is the best version of Superman I've ever seen. Is the best version of like Supergirl. The uh, maybe I'd probably say still the best version of like They do use Darkseid. Who's voiced by Michael Ironside? In, oh, in, that's awesome! Yeah, in the Superman cartoon, they so they get so much great mileage out of Superman fighting Darkseid, and that fucking it's it's amazing. There's and just death. It's it's fucking great. And then the Justice League, the Justice League show that is the best version of the Justice League there's ever been because and the version and the characters that are on the Justice League is the best version of those characters because they since they sat down to use those characters specifically for the Justice League, they were able to tailor-make them so that, you know, they were able to bring out certain sides of the characters so that they worked much better as a team than normally would. And then they also made great choices, like Hawkgirl. I've never seen Hawkgirl in anything other than the Justice League shows. Like, I know she's... I don't even know if she ever had her own comic book series. I know Savage Hawkman is a fairly long-running comic book, DC comic book character. But Hawkgirl is great. They don't use... Uh, Hal Jordan as the Green Lantern they use Jon Stewart who he's like this black I think he used to be an army sergeant he's fucking awesome he's like I don't know it's like the weirdest thing because I don't know why they don't always just use Jon Stewart as Green Lantern because Jon Stewart as Green Lantern on the show fucking awesome way better like Hal Jordan is lame nobody likes Hal Jordan who gives a shit about Hal Jordan he's got no characterization nobody gives a shit about Hal Jordan Jon Stewart is a badass motherfucker Jon Stewart will fuck you up and what's great
0: yeah, and then... <laughs> I know, John Stewart, I'm sorry. And then just, it,
1: for me, when I see The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, I'm the, I come from the other direction. Okay. Now I, I think of Jon Stewart as being a Green Lantern. I
0: just love that sentence when yeah. I think of Jon Stewart from The Daily Show. Jon Stewart is a, <laughs> a badass, badass motherfucker. motherfucker.
1: He will fuck you up. He's got a green ring. Anything he wants to make, he can make of that ring. He will fuck you up. You know, Jon Stewart is not, the, unlike Hal Jordan, he's not the kind of guy who will only use his ring to make a big fucking boxing glove and punch people in the face. Hal Jordan... Was uncreative guy in the world gets a weapon that runs entirely on your creativity. Never made sense to me. But then also, you know, their version of The Flash is fucking amazing. It's, uh, they use Wally West, like the, the original version of The Flash. Okay, the original, the Silver Age version of The Flash is a guy called Barry Allen. That's sort of the guy that most people, I guess, would think of when they think of The Flash. And they use, he had a sidekick called Kid Flash, and who's Wally West, and in the DC continuity, Barry Allen sort of sacrifices himself in Crisis on Infinite Earths and all this stuff, and Wally West becomes the Flash. Then eventually, for whatever reason, DC was like, eh, we like how we like uh, Barry Allen more, so we're going to make him the Flash again when Wally West has the Flash is so much better because Wally West is the funny fucking guy. And having this, like, funny, like, wisecracking Flash works so much better. So they have the Wally West Flash on the Justice League show, and so his... So, like, when you normally do the uh, Justice League, all the characters, other than Batman and Wonder Woman, are all just kind of, like, Superman, but with different powers. Like, their personalities are all, they're just kind of Boy Scouts, you know? Hal Jordan has no real personality, he just, you know... He's He's there. Yeah, he's just there. Barry Allen doesn't have any real personality, he's just like a Boy Scout, you know? He's, like, really optimistic and kind of naive, and he fights crime. It's like, they're all basically Superman, and here they made this, like, really interesting team dynamic between all those characters in the Justice League show... And I think... And then they make the Justice League show kind of serialized, whereas the Batman animated series had some, you know, like, that's cool episodes and stuff. And the Superman animated series, like, dealt with that a little bit more. Justice League is almost completely serialized. Like, they build on those story arcs, and they have, like... Series finales and stuff like that. It, that would be yeah. really
0: cool to see because I love the Batman show, but I always thought it would be great to get just like a, even a season of that serialized. But,
1: yeah, like they, yeah, they, and they, they build with like character relationships and stuff. They have, you know, the Green Lantern and Hawkgirl kind of hook up, then Hawkgirl at the end of the series, like they're the end of like Justice League Normal, sort of the, uh, I forget what they're called, but like the race of people that Hawkgirl comes from sort of almost sort of invade Earth. And they do a lot of really interesting things with those characters. And then in Justice League Unlimited, where they sort of highlight a lot of like smaller supporting characters, there's one episode that's written by uh, Gail Simone, who's a really fantastic comic book writer, that's sort of all about the Huntress and the Question. And the version of the Question in Justice League Unlimited, again, I don't know why DC doesn't just take these versions of these characters and just slot them into their comic book shot because these shows all ended in like 2005. I think that was when the last uh, episode of Justice League Unlimited aired. And the version of the Question, who he's sort of like, this very old school sort of like pulp hero where he's got a mask that's like has no face on it and he sort of goes around and like investigates crimes and stuff and just as like unlimited he's very specifically sort of like this conspiracy theory nut job and it's his character is so great i never know why they don't just use that that version of the character for their normal dc continuity and that's sort of that's that's the story for all of these characters. Is that all these characters are the best versions of these characters have ever been? They they create a much more interesting team dynamic with the Justice League, and so you know there's nothing like few things can beat having the definitive versions of some of the most iconic characters ever in American pop culture. Yeah, yeah. and that's what all these shows are. They boil these characters down to their absolute essence and tell the best stories with these characters that have ever been told. And so I couldn't possibly just like leave any of them off. I think probably the weakest one out of all these would be Batman Beyond, because it's entirely original. But then it also has its own really unique flavor, and I think Batman Beyond wasn't able to wish it had a little bit more to sort of, like, stand on its own and expand its own mythology, because I think it sort of aired subsequently, like, with uh, Justice League, because Justice League Unlimited was the last one of these shows to go off the air. But, like, even with Batman Beyond being sort of the weakest link, it's also absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So... She shows are all great, you know. There's also the Mask of the Phantasm coming out of the Batman the Animated series. I also kind of include that because it's basically part of the show. The same thing with Batman Beyond and Return of the Joker, another animated film, basically part of the show. Both of those fucking awesome. Yeah, and the voice casts for oh, all yeah. the characters absolutely amazing. You know, uh, Michael Rosenbaum who plays the Flash in Justice League is fucking great. Uh, Tim Daly, who's Superman in the anime series, is great. And they also, they recast uh, him in Justice League as George Newbern. He's just as good as Tim Daly. Like, all around just absolutely phenomenal voice casts, just phenomenal writing, phenomenal stories. Fucking DC cartoons. Watch them. They're, they are great.
0: All right, and now for something completely different. Yep. Sounds like I'm transitioning into Monty Python's Flying Circus. Unfortunately, you're not. No, although I've left that out of my honorable mentions, which is too bad, because yeah. I love the hell out of that show. But anyway, what I'm actually transitioning into is my number two show, second favorite show of all time, AMC's Mad Men. And this is another one of those shows that it's, it was you know, it's a little tough to figure out exactly where to put it, because it is not finished yet. They're about to start mm-hmm. their sixth season. There will be seven total. They're, they've basically confirmed their ending on the seventh, eventually. Um, but... There's there's really no way in hell the show is going to go down in anyone's estimation unless the writer of the show just goes insane and, I don't know, has Don Draper go into space to fight, like, space communists or something.
1: I think he should have him go into the past and live as a
0: caveman fighting dinosaurs. Yeah. Either way, that would make Mad Men terrible, and that's not going to happen. Mad Men is the most consistently great drama on American TV and has been for five seasons, and Mad Men... You know, if you've never seen it, it's just sort of like it's a show that it's really hard to describe why it works so well, but to me, Mad Men just does everything I want out of great fiction. Yeah. It is hugely entertaining, wonderful cast, great characters, they play off each other well, it can be very funny, it's ridiculously stylish, it is the TV's most gorgeous show visually, just the cinematography is not just movie quality, but most better than most American movies these days, I think, it's just gorgeously shot, production design is immaculate, um, it's just a wonderful show to watch. That way, the dialogue just crackles when they want to be funny, and just have and just go back and forth and things like that it works great. But it is also a show that you really have to use your, your use your head to watch. It's very intellectual. It's very smart, and as deep as you want to go with this show, it will reward you. However many levels deep you want to go with it, it is. I really, last year, I started writing about Mad Men Weekly, analyzing every episode. And those were some of my favorite writing exercises ever because just sitting down and writing about this show and engaging in a dialogue with the show is so rewarding. And I think that's when I realized how much I really love Mad Men because the fifth season, that's probably my favorite season overall, but I don't think it's like appreciably like they made the leap or anything. Yeah. It's just. I started writing about it and it was just so fun because you can do that with Mad Men. You can go as deep as you want to go with that show and it will reward you. It is always, it is always dealing with heavy stuff and it is always dealing with it in the smartest ways and in the, not always in the subtlest ways because Matthew Weiner likes sort of big symbolism sometimes and he, um, he's not always the subtlest of writers but that doesn't matter because that's just the show is so intelligent it has such a great handle on its characters but also on its social commentary and on the way in which it views the world and it is just and and I think you know it it portrays a period that is very sort of romanticized in american culture or or demonized or, you know it's, yeah. it's just it's just the 60s are a show we often view in either one context or another yeah. and mad men kind of views it in all of them but from I think, a really interesting perspective where it's high, upper-class uh, white people. Yeah. And you would not think that's the best, one of the best ways to look at the 60s, but it kind of is, because these are the people who kind of had the power. Yeah. Or obviously had the power. And so when the it... Man.
1: Madman.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think Madman has been criticized sometimes for it not dealing with race heavily. If it dealt with race heavily, it would be lying. Yeah. Because that is a statement the show is making, is that these people just ignored race. Yeah. And these people were fucking sexist. And so people mistake Mad Men for being sexist. Mad Men is the yeah. most staunchly feminist show on television. Yeah. and Yeah,
1: it's just, yeah when you're doing a period piece, you yeah. can't like go out of your way to be like super overtly preachy about like the practices of the time. You show the practices of the time as they happen.
0: And I think what you're getting you at...
1: you judge them for yourself.
0: Yeah, and I think what you're probably getting at is that most shows that deal with the 60s don't do that. They do yeah. The yeah. very overt, over-the-top, like we'll just, you know, we'll have things that are totally unrealistic because we want to say something. I think you can say that even stronger if you actually portray the reality of these situations. And so Mad Men does all this and it is just like I said, it's just everything I want out of TV. And it is on you know on this favorite versus best level. Mad Men is definitely my favorite show just to sit down and watch. Now my number one show is both the best show I've seen and my favorite on the level that I feel like I have gotten the most out of it in my life. But Mad Men is just such a ridiculously fun show to watch. And fun in the sense that it, it 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 sort of stimulates me on every level. In that it it's not just that it's fun like you know Dragon Ball where it's just fun. Yeah. You turn your brain off some in some ways. You know, fun with that. It's that you can have fun with this show while having your brain fully active and engaging with it. And it's such a fun show to talk to other people with. And it. It's just it always knows what it wants to be. Every season, you know, you've talked about certain shows that it's always good when a show kind of changes itself up every season. Yeah. Mad Men doesn't do that, like, literally overtly, where mm-hmm. they're like, you know, they, they move to another state yeah. every season or something. But every season has its own thematic focus, a very clear arc. Um, no Mad Men season finale could not function just as well as a series finale. The show, every season is fairly self-contained in that it is, they've got 13 episodes, they're going to tell, tell their story but that's the other great thing about Mad Men is that while it is definitely serialized and you couldn't just start with the season six premiere coming up and get into Mad Men, it's a show that still retains some episodic qualities where each episode is a fully formed sort of like mini masterpiece. It's like each episode is a short story and it plays into these larger stories that are going on, but it's so much fun to watch it and just know that Every episode you are going to get something complete with a complete beginning, middle, end, and that will be a satisfying experience. It's a really fun show to watch live week to week because of that. Because you really do get something watching every single episode and they all work on their own while serving a larger plot function and character function. And I think that's something that, you know, I like TV shows that are just completely serialized. I mean, you're going to hear that in my number one. But, you know, I think you kind of lose something sometimes in a show that, let's say, HBO's Game of Thrones, which I also love. That show is its just, a you know, every season is a 10-episode movie that they've cut and shown you in one-episode chunks. And that's fine, but Game of Thrones, if if I weren't so afraid of spoilers, I would wait until every season of Game of Thrones was over. I kind of watch it week to week because I feel like if I don't, I'm going to just open Twitter one day and it'll tell me just a list of characters who died this season. And Game of Thrones is not the show you want to be spoiled on. Yeah. Um, but Mad Men is, is, I think it retains that TV is a serialized medium, but it's also a medium that is episodic, and yeah. why not use it for that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I always love shows that have these thematic connections within episodes, and, and the characters are just so great, and the performances. I mean, everything about Mad Men is it's better than everything else on TV. Every performance, every piece of cinematography, every piece of writing, every piece of directing, everything about it just is superior. John Hamm, Elizabeth Moss, um, Christina Hendricks, John Slattery, Uh, Just everybody on this show is so damn good. And I love how they kind of rework the characters every season, where some seasons, you know, Peggy will be our co-lead with Don Draper. And some seasons, like this season, season five, she'll be a little bit more minor, but she'll still get the absolute best material because she's just, uh, she's my favorite character. She's great. But then some seasons, Roger, played by John Slattery, will be a very minor presence. And then season five, he'll be like, he'll also be kind of like a co-lead. He's very, very significant. And they always know how to feature their characters in the way that will serve them best. They don't just, you know, if one season a character was really big, they're not going to force them to be big next year just because they were big last year. If they don't have a story at this point to tell that suits that character perfectly, they will find other ways to use them. And I think that's a really smart way of doing it. And I'm just really excited to see where the show goes from here. I think, you know, Mad Men could have definitely been my number one show on this list, but I know my number one show is a complete show. Definitely wanted the show at number one to be complete. And I think Mad Men definitely could... Surpass it for me if seasons six and seven are as good as the last five because just seasons one through five of Mad Men are pretty much consistently just masterful. And it's you can't even really say which one's the best, they're just all fucking great. And I love the hell out of this show, so that's my number two.
1: All right, my number two, which maybe got a little bit spoiled from the theme song at the beginning of the podcast, but it's a show very near and dear to my heart. It is The X Files, yes. Ba-da-ba-bum. Do,
0: do, yeah. do, 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 The truth.
1: The truth is out there. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, if you don't know anything about The X-Files, chances are you probably do, but it, it is a show. that uh, started in 1993. It had nine seasons. Start David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson as Agent Fox Mulder and Agent Scully. I just want to say, great names for characters. Yeah, yeah, Mulder and Scully. And I love, I love that they always call each other Mulder and Scully, other than for, like, super dramatic moments where Scully's like, Fox. And it's like, they pull out the first names for, like, the gut punches. I always... Like, that's what... Why don't... That should be what we do. Like, we should always call each other by our last names until stuff is really dramatic, and then I'm just like, Jonathan. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's... For some reason, that's not what you do. Apparently not everybody has seen The X-Files.
0: Go on, Chapman. But...
1: all oh, right, Lack. But yeah, it's basically... Agent Mulder is sort of this Sherlock Holmesy type character. He's this, like, sort of nutcase, detective-type dude working at the FBI, and he's really into, like, the occult and supernatural stuff, UFO, alien abductions, that kind of shit, and he's been sort of... The FBI... He's really... uh, He's a brilliant guy, so the FBI wants him, but he also gives the FBI a really bad image because he's kind of fucking crazy, or at least they think he's crazy, so they stick him in the basement in a place they call the X-Files, where basically any file that, like, any case that's time they can't explain it for whatever reason sort of gets thrown down into the x-files then when scully joins the fbi she gets made his partner and she's putting it on the x-files as well and it's sort of the series is a combination of what fans of the show started calling monster the week episodes that kind of became the terminology for those kinds of episodes in general of this sort of one-off story it's focused on like you know they run into a sasquatch or whatever you know they they've fight the homeowner's association of some random neighborhood that is ruled by a guy who, like, is into the occult and has this, like, voodoo thing that makes a swamp monster come up, but he lost control of the swamp monster and it's killing people. Fantastic fucking episode. (laughs) But, basically, most of the episodes are those Monster of the Week episodes, and they're really great, and particularly for someone like me, who I have a personal interest in sort of supernatural stuff, the occult, stuff like that, I'm really into that shit. And so this show, like, hits on that in a really great great way, because it just will grab all elements of all different sort of like mythologies and stuff like that and just like throw it into a big blender and you'll encounter it and like reimagine them in really cool ways. But then it also developed this ongoing plot throughout the course of the show involving. At first, it was just Mulder trying to figure out what happened to his sister because he saw this sister was abducted by aliens and stuff like that. And then eventually it grew into. Ah, uh, the cigarette smoking man, sort of like this, like mysterious men in black, sort of organization, government organization behind the scenes, manipulating things. They find out an impending, uh, like alien colonization of Earth and stuff like that, and it's like just a lot of, you know, very cryptic behind the scenes manipulation of really powerful people, and then Mulder just trying to like getting little bits of information, trying to figure out what to do with that, and those overall like overarching plot things were also while at, by the end it kind of started getting off the rails, it, extremely fascinating, really great, just intrigue, and sort of the show, while, like, obviously, you know, it's a show that ran for nine seasons, is not, like, this, like, perfect, like, everything is great, like, always, the show probably went on a little longer than it should have. The way I watch, I watched actually quite a bit of The X-Files, like, in its, like, Twilight years while it was still airing, and then a lot of reruns past that point, And then when I got Netflix, I was like, I watched Star Trek, the the original series, and I was like, that that was really awesome, but now, like, I want to watch another TV show, like, I want another thing to, like, occupy the spot in my life right now. So I was like, they have all nine seasons of the fucking X-Files on Netflix, and that started a very long rabbit hole of then me marathoning all nine seasons of the X-Files as quickly as I possibly could, and that's actually kind of the way to watch that show, because I think if you try to watch that, try to watch that show week to week, eventually that alien conspiracy stuff would make no goddamn sense. And Trying I know, to that remember some of that cryptic shit between like those episodes would be impossible if you were watching it week by week or like seasons across years.
0: And I think this is what is interesting. You know, I, I don't, I have not watched a huge amount of the X Files, but I yeah. know a lot about the show's legacy just because I read about TV a lot. And I think that's the number one thing that's kind of hurt the show's legacy. Is I know a lot of people felt like it never. Paid off on certain things. It
1: kind and of doesn't, but it kind of does. Like, but, but that's does, obviously clearer but, if yeah. you've
0: seen it all at once. Yeah, yeah. I think if
1: you marathon it, it, it like because it doesn't. The series does end with like this overhanging, like they don't stop when like the alien invasion is. It's like still impending. It was going to happen on December twenty first, two thousand twelve. Super disappointed that it didn't happen in real life. Just like validate that it's like X Files was right all along. But, yeah, like, they never solved that, but I do think the truth, like, the two-part uh, series finale does wrap up, you know, kind of in a just sort of cheesy way, but it's a nine-season long show. Yeah. You, you want to have this cheesy, like, you know, you bring all your characters back, even characters who are dead, get, like, a flashback or something, and sort of, they, they wrap it up nicely in that context, and they and they wrap up the Mulder and Scully's relationship that way. And so I think, while it's not perfect, like, particularly uh, David Duchovny, who played... Uh, Fox Mulder, he left the show at... Kind of left the show at Season 7. They brought on uh, Robert Patrick to play another character, John Doggett, for Season 8 as sort of, like, the main lead, and then David Duchovny would pop in for, like, mainly the, the, like, large story arc episodes. And then past that point, they brought on another actress to play Monica Reyes, and the show sort of... in it's season. I think, it, honestly, the show could have kept on going, like, with a more evolving cast past that point. Because, Law and Order style. Yeah, more or less, where it, because they had scully sort of kind of took on the uh agent skinner role who he was like the direct like the assistant director of the fbi so like sort of the overhead like chief of police kind of role with scully and they had ray as a dog being the actual agents who like really were investigating the crimes and i and i like those characters and i thought a lot of the season nine episodes were really well done but like obviously i think the show couldn't grow out of Mulder's shadow because Mulder was such a strong character like fuck like, the Mulder and Scully team, the chemistry between David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson is the most phenomenal chemistry between two actors I have ever seen. And that is the main reason why the X-Files is as good as it is and why it is number two is because of Mulder and Scully and because of Duchovny and Anderson. Because and, and you know, those characters work so phenomenally in tandem. It is unbelievable. Those like, like, I did, like, the phrase, like, chemistry between actors... Doesn't apply to anyone other than David Duchovny or Jillian Anderson for me because it's like, like th- th- that word chemistry. Just like that's that's what it is. That is what it is on screen. You can feel it like in your fucking gut. I don't know what it is
0: between those two people,
1: but it is there.
0: And I think what's so interesting to me about that is that you know I have I've only seen about. I seen about two-thirds of the first season, and I need to... Yeah. I always have wanted to go back and watch the whole thing. And it was the same thing for me, is that... It, obviously, the X-Files had some growing pains in its first season. Yeah. It did not come out of the box great.
1: Yeah, the best parts of the first season are, like, the latter parts.
0: But what I was going to say is that you can get that chemistry right off the bat yeah. with them. It's not at its best yet, but it's definitely developing. Yeah. And it's just, like, every episode, even the, the weaker ones, um, are just, like... You just want to watch it, because those two interacting is a ton of fun. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's just... Yeah, even, like, the weakest X-Files episodes which there were quite a few pretty weak episode, X-Files episodes because there are a lot of episodes, but it's like, you don't mind because you're just like, I get more Mulder and Scully, like David Duchovny and Jillian Anderson are always great, and God, God, that's like this show, it's, it's like there's too much of this show to really be able to talk about, but I just, I think the way it handled having those Monster of the Week episodes and then also having this overarching plot, I think it just pulled the, that off so well where it's, it almost kind of reminds me, sort of, like, similar to the pacing of, like, the game, like, Persona 4, where it's, like, every time you're sort of sick of one part of it, you move on to a different part. So it's, like, once you kind of, like, I kind of had enough of this plot stuff, it's, like, then you get the Monster of the Week stuff, and then once you're, like, I'm kind of tired with, like, the standalone Monster of the Week stories, then you get, like, a bit of the, like, overarching plot, and you're, like, fuck yeah. That's, you know, you get a little episode with crycheck or something, it's, like, that's pretty badass.
0: The X-Files yeah. was also, obviously, very one of these significant stepping stones for American TV in terms of how we change sort of the structure yeah, because it comes out in, you know, the 90s and it is not sort of fully serialized as we would view it today because it does that monster of yeah. the week structure. But it's definitely, even having those serialized elements, those arc elements, yeah. was a huge step forward. Yeah. And in fact, you know, many of the shows that have copied it in certain terms have not even really done that. Have yeah, really yeah. That like it, I
1: think it's, well, because most shows either are one one or the other. Most yeah. shows are either like you know CSI, where it's like it's completely serialized, or they're you know something like Mad Men or Game of Thrones, where it's like you know they have standalone episodes, but it's like you need to watch like it's serialized. Like you need to watch the episodes in order. goddammit. it! Like yeah. that's that's the way that story is presented to you. Yeah. Whereas yeah, I think X Files is one of the very few shows that really nails that balance, and, it, and it's it's in large part to the characters. Another character that one of my absolute, like, probably my favorite villain on TV ever is the cigarette smoking man because he's the cigarette smoking man you know, he has no name, played by William B. Davis and he is, the fav- my favorite thing about this character is that William B. Davis just, he, in the pilot episode he was just like in the, like this one dude in a fucking FBI interrogation room that uh, like, uh, Scully was just walking by, glances into it and there's just this guy in the corner in the shadows smoking a fucking cigarette and that's it that is all that William B. Davis was going to be. He was just a fucking extra just playing this, like, random extra shadowy agent dude in that room. Like, he was not meant to be a character. But just, he smokes a cigarette so fucking cool Then they're like, we gotta bring this guy back. And so they slowly built him up to then eventually being the primary villain of the series. Then eventually, kind of, eh, is he a villain? Is he actually a good guy, like, actually kind of working against the aliens? Sort of, you don't really know... But Cigarette Smoking Man, they have an episode, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, that sort of go into his backstory a little bit. There's this great thing where he was uh, going to be a writer, but like, and he's still kind of a writer, like he still writes things, and he sends stories into magazines that are based on stuff he's actually done because he deals with all this crazy shit, but they keep on telling us like, this is too ridiculous, this is too unrealistic, you can't be doing this. And he has this, I wish I could find the actual quote, but it's probably not really anywhere online, but he has this reworking of the Forrest Gump life is like a box of chocolates thing where like the cigarette smoking man says that line and then he goes off on it like like it makes this like super cynical like it's this perfunctory box of treats that you have one and then you like you feel bad about yourself because it's like you keep on eating them and it's like you know you shouldn't kind of thing it's like the actual speech he gives is so fucking fantastic There's also the uh, trio characters called the Lone Gunmen, who they're sort of recurring characters that pop up every now and then. They they got, like, a season of their own show that's also pretty good, and those guys are always great. The show just handled characters so well, but then it also was able to take these really interesting plots and these really interesting, like, mythologies and little, you know, like, stories about Sasquatch and whatever, and able to, like, sort of stick that all into one show where, you know, there's something for everybody in the X-Files, I feel, but Everything in it was also specifically for me, so that made me definitely love it. You know, if is my number two show, if there was not another show that we'll talk about that was even more special to me, this would be my number one. Like, I love the X-Files so much. It's such a huge part of my life, and, you know.
0: And I think, you know, you were just talking about something for everyone. People, I think, forget because now it's like, oh, sci-fi, and you know, it's just niche, it's for yeah. nerds. This was one of the biggest hits on yeah, television yeah, ever. Yeah, without a doubt, yeah. It, it was totally it, mainstream. People loved it.
1: Mhm. It's yeah, fucking the X Files, man.
0: Yeah. It's so so fucking good. And and if you want to know, maybe if, going back to our Firefly discussion from last episode, one of the reasons why Fox may have thought it was a good idea to put Firefly on Fridays, X Files started out on Fridays, became a giant hit. Yeah, that's. that's I mean, that was the precedent. If you Mulder and
1: Scully, man, yeah. don't mess with Mulder and Scully. That chemistry, dude. It's un- unmatched, unmatched anywhere else in t- on screen.
0: All right. So, is that it for X Files? I think
1: that's it for the X Files. Like e- that's either it for the X Files or we're sitting here for two more
0: hours and we talking, going through yes. all the episodes of the X Files. So, the pilot. I <laughs> like the pilot because the first scene of the pilot starts with. No. <laughs> yeah. All right. I understand how you feel. Yeah. So, that was your number two show. So, My we are down, Sean, to our number the one. Our shows. number ones. All, all right, right. All let's right. get
1: into it. Black.
0: All right, my number one show of all time is HBO's The Wire, and it's a very standard choice. The Wire is basically the Citizen Kane of American TV. Everyone who's seen it listed as you know the number one. That's just sort of the thing to do, and I I can't disagree. Uh, the Wire changed my life, and I will have many things to say about it. But I have to start by just kind of describing what it is. And now, Sean. I fully understand your challenge when you sat down a couple months ago on this podcast to try to describe Persona 4. (laughs) Because the thing about Persona 4 that made it so tough was not just that it was so big and vast and did so much and took on so much and succeeded in so much and was so complex in its systems and story, but that there's really nothing else like it. Yeah, yeah. There is absolutely nothing else like The Wire that has been filmed at least. The Wire has a very novelistic structure to a certain degree, but even then... It's not the same as a novel because it's filmed. Yeah. It's, a, it's a TV show. And The Wire is like absolutely nothing else you have ever seen, filmed at least. And it is, to me, it is my favorite TV show. It is, but more than that, it's just my favorite fictional story. I like it more than any movie I've ever seen. I like it more than any book I've ever read. Any like It has more impact on me than any game. It is just... It is so incredibly powerful and it is so incredibly well done and ambitious. the general structure I guess the the wire is set in Baltimore. if you look at it on the surface, it kind of just looks like a cop show because it's a team of police officers in the first season at least looking for trying to do a trying to take down a, a the, the drug gang in Baltimore uh, the illicit, illicit drug trade, but it winds up being basically a parable for all of America, and it's basically trying to take on it systematically, point by point, system by system, why is America broken? And this is one of the most deeply cynical stories you will ever find, because creator David Simon's viewpoint of the world is that America is completely broken and can never be fixed. And that is where where the show starts out from, and by the time you get to episode 60, the last episode, you will completely believe and agree with him, and your entire outlook on the world will be changed if you were not already at that point. And even if you were, you will now see every fucking system of why America is completely fucking broken. And it, it basically it does this systematically through a five-season structure where season one starts out, it, and it's all set in Baltimore, and Baltimore sort of becomes this, it's, the, it's sort of like the uh, key American city for David Simon's vision, because it is a city that is big, multicultural, and has a lot of problems. Yeah. Baltimore is not a nice place to live. I mean, I'm sure some parts of it are, if you're in a certain social standing, but class is a big part of The Wire. And if you got to that social standing, you you know, there's probably other people who suffered because of it in The Wire's view. But this five-season structure, part season one, follows basically two sets of characters. And there is no main character on The Wire. The Wire is the truest example of an ensemble show you will ever see because it is nobody really... At certain points, one person will be more important than some of the others. Like, in the beginning, Dominic West and the character played by, I believe, Larry Gillard, Jr., um, are sort of the two main characters. But basically, Dominic West plays Detective McNulty, and sort of that's on his side is sort of the police officers. He has convinced um, the Baltimore PD to try to take down the sort of drug ring The Avon Barksdale drug ring is the sort of their main... That's the main sort of drug ring in Baltimore they're trying to go after. So, again, this five-season structure. Season one is the illegal drug trade in Baltimore. It's sort of a full-circle full, like, full circle analysis of that. Season two then moves on to the docks, and it's sort of like this idea of the docks as, in a larger American context, they're a stand-in for any sort of in- industry in America, yeah. which is largely going away. And so it's about the docks. It's The shipworkers' union is a big part of that. It's the only season where the cast has a significant number of white actors because, obviously, the people who work on the docks, that's a very sort of... Yeah. um, That's sort of a white kind of society there. Um, Otherwise, most of the cast of The Wire is African-American. And then season three is sort of the season about politics, but I also see it sort of as a season just about government in general, systems in general, the nature of change, I think, is a big idea there, that change is kind of impossible in rigid government systems. Season four is about education, and season five is it ties all of these things together, and then the new element is the media, because all that's how all of these things are filtered through to the public. And sort of through those five, that's their big structure. It has a ton of characters, just a shit ton of characters everywhere. There's new ones added in every season, and you have to... Like, the first... This is the number one thing you have to understand about The Wire, is it is incredibly tough to follow if you're not paying 100% attention. Mm-hmm. This is not a show you can open your cell phone during. This is not a show you can do anything else while you're watching. It is like reading a really, really complex and rich novel. And it, and so like you know, if you're going to watch The Wire, you definitely want to sit down and start by watching the first three or four episodes of Season 1 all in one go. Because The Wire, I do think, will teach you how to watch it. But you have to invest, and you have to invest and watch a couple episodes all at once. Yeah. Um, I can't. I can't imagine how people watch this show week to week back on HBO. It would be fucking impossible. Um, and so, but basically, you know, you have all these characters, totally ensemble based. Um, the stories are very thick, and there's a lot going on. It doesn't do a lot to necessarily introduce things. You're just kind of thrown into it. And each season, sort of the structure of it is you've got a lot of exposition up front. The first couple episodes will be what you would perceive as slow, but they're putting the pieces in place because then the last two-thirds of the season will be unstoppable. You just cannot stop watching. It's, it's, It's very much just once all the pieces are in place and they get going, it's it's weird. It's like you physically alter while you're watching it because it just makes you feel something physically while this show is happening mm-hmm. and that's incredible. It's like there's just this feeling of all these things coming together and you seeing all these connections in this big, very realistic world they've structured. I mean, realism is a huge element of the show. It, it, it strives for absolute, utter realism in everything it does and I think, except in places where you know you just can't get that when you're filming something, it yeah. completely uh, 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 achieves what it's trying to do in that level. And it is it's incredibly intelligent in everything it explores. And it's, it's, this, is, this is really tough. This is yeah. what Persona yeah. 4 must have been like for you, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now then try to do all of that, but then also try to describe the game mechanics. I on know. Of it.
0: Well, definitely the aesthetics of the show are really interesting because it's, it's, it's really fascinating. It was shot in... I think this is actually kind of significant. It was shot in 4x3 for all five seasons, despite starting in 2002. And it was because sort of, they're not necessarily going for a documentary aesthetic, but they are definitely making the visuals, it's a very well shot show, but it's just about getting you in there. And so, any sort of visual adornments, you throw them out the window. That's not the important part. It's just about getting the action in. And I think that like, the 4x3 square f- frame is yeah. very much representative of that. That That's just that's just the basic way of shooting, that's how you do it. It's rectangular frame, by the way. It's 4x3. Right. That's true. But it is more, Yeah. It definitely you you have a bigger sense of the border when you watch a show like that yeah. or a movie, and so that's kind of important. And it uses no music um, that is not diegetic, except at the end of every season. There will be a non diegetic song played over a final montage that brings everything together and shows you where everyone ends up and things. Hmm. Um, and, and I think there's, they break that once in season two, where there's a piece of music in the like penultimate episode also, and it works. It works very well there. Season two is actually the most stylistically experimental. It does some different things, and then they kind of go back to just sort of the sparse style. Um, totally dialogue-driven. There's definitely, I mean, the visuals are always very strong, but it's, it is is a dialogue-driven show, and it. Um, th- but and, and with, within all this, it's kind of interesting. I'm describing it as this very sort of thick structure. It is very novelistic. In fact, a lot of the writers I've brought a list up are novel writers. David Simon, Ed Burns, George Pelicanos, Richard Price, uh, Dennis Lehane, David Mills, Eric Overmeyer. These are all, a lot of these guys are just they were novel writers they're crime novel writers and they bring this to it where definitely the structure when you read a very complex novel is the first couple of chapters are yeah. all about putting things in place and and a novel does not is not necessarily episodic you just you go through it and you know when you you will take a break between chapters maybe yeah. but the book does not take a break And, but once you get to a certain point in a really good book, that's when it just takes off and you cannot stop reading it. That's what The Wire is like. And it has been called the great American novel for television, and that's really what it is. That's what it aspires to be, and that's what it succeeds in being. And the bigger it gets the more cynical it gets, but the more cynical it gets because it can justify that with the amount of story it's telling and the way it goes into this. And the, uh, the other idea, I think, structurally is the idea of procedure and process is a big deal in The Wire. That first season is just one case. They're trying to take down Avon Barksdale. They don't really succeed. They get a small portion of his empire at the end, but it's just about... You know, the first three episodes, how do they get a wiretap in place? Because when you're a cop, you don't just go bug someone's phone. Yeah. It's an incredibly arduous process, especially in a place like Baltimore where it's just overrun with bureaucracy and so it's always about the process of how these things go down and that's why it's so rewarding is because when big things happen they're completely justified they don't ever cut out a step in the wire there's a little bit of that in season five because they had to do 10 episodes instead of their normal 13 and that's that's why that's sort of considered the weakest season of the show although i think it's effectively just as good as any of the other ones it's just it's too bad they couldn't do a full 12 episodes yeah but not their fault, I guess. Anyway, but that's really fascinating. And, and and within all this, I'm, it sounds like a very dense show when I describe it this way. But it is also ridiculously entertaining, and the characters are fantastic. The acting, which is mostly by unknowns who were Baltimore na- natives, although there's a lot of these actors have gone on to do a lot. Um, all the performances are just ridiculously good, and the characters are really compelling to watch. And while this is a show with larger plot themes and socio-political themes its character work is just as good as any other show I've described on this list or I've ever seen. And I think we often have a split in modern American shows between are they a character-based show or are they a plot-based? Yeah. Like, which one does it do better? Mm -hmm. Well, The Wire does both. And it does them both perfectly and flawlessly... And it's so amazing to see a show where the plot can work, where you will you will never find a plot hole in the show. You will never find any points where you can quibble with what happens in the plot beyond like I'm sad this happened because the show will break your heart over and over again. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it does all its characters justice, no matter how many they add to the show. I mean, Sean, look at this list yeah. of starring.
1: Yeah, I was just looking at that. These yeah. like this just the starring section on Wikipedia, and it's like takes up the entire screen.
0: And that's just people who were credited yeah. in the opening credits at one point or another. Guest stars are not included in that. Yeah. And it's just, it's wild. I mean, in the fourth season, they introduce, basically, the cast, the main characters we start following in the fourth season are brand new, and they're kids, and they're kids in this high school who are are very, you know, troubled, uh, living in a troubled environment, and those kids wind up being some of the best TV characters you'll ever see, and you just love these kids, and terrible fucking things happen to them, and it breaks your heart, and it's just really tough to watch, and what's amazing is those characters weren't introduced until the fourth friggin' season. And, you know, Dominic West, who's sort of the the headliner of the show for the first three seasons, he's barely in the fourth season. They can do things like that where they move characters in and out. Whenever they introduce new characters, they are able to serve them very well. It's just, and because those characters are so well done, there is a lot of humor to the show. There's a lot of entertaining stuff. There are some side-splittingly funny scenes. There's one great scene early in the first season where um, McNulty and Buck, their partners, they basically are investigating this murder scene, and they're just, they, they don't need to talk when they investigate a murder scene anymore. They've been doing this so long, they can just show each other what's going on. Yeah. And so this whole five-minute scene, every word they say is a variation on "fuck." They're like, "Motherfucker, what the fuck?" Like, like they just say yeah. "fuck," like going back and forth at all the evidence they find. And and we're we're kind of lost here because we don't know fully what they're like getting at. Yeah. But this where they're putting this investigation together. And when we see the payoff, it's like these guys are really smart, and it it works really well. It is. Really, if I were to go deep with this show and go beyond just scratching the surface and describing what it's like to watch it, this would be several podcasts. It would be like the persona thing. I mean, even in our persona podcast that we did, two of them, we really only scratched the surface. Yeah, yeah. That's like I said in that
1: that persona podcast, I could have been a podcast that we did for a year. Yeah, yeah. just that. And the wire is
0: the same way. In fact, this is really cool. We, Sean and I, both go to the University of Colorado Boulder. And I'm a film major, and one of the film classes they're offering this summer, they're bringing in a guest professor from the University of California, Berkeley, and she is teaching a whole class on The Wire. And I'm taking that because that sounds awesome, and that's really, that's kind of how you would need to talk about The Wire if you were really going to get into it, is either write about every episode or do a whole class. Yeah. And if you are going to watch The Wire, I would definitely recommend... Look up the writings of Alan Sepinwall. He's sort of the most... He's kind of the Roger Ebert of TV critics. I love reading his stuff. He sort of in... I don't want to say invented, but he sort of pioneered the model where we review shows episode by episode. Uh, he writes for Hit-Fix now. Previously, he had a blog called What's Alan Watching? He wrote about f- seasons four and five of The Wire there, and one, and then seasons two and three, I believe, or or... No, all f- 1, 2, 4, and 5 were written about there, and then Season 3 was written about at HitFix, but he has all the links so you can find them. And he went through after the fact, episode by episode, after they'd aired, and, and did these in-depth analyses of each episode, and those are really helpful to read, because it's not that he's like describing what happened to you, but just getting into it and getting into this deeper discussion. Like I said about Mad Men, Mad Men is at its best when you can discuss it or write about it or do something with it. The Wire is the same way, and it is... It's just it's it's the best thing I've ever seen. And I, I don't even know how to go up beyond that. And I you know, I watched it all in one go in like a month, a couple years ago, and I haven't I haven't even had the strength to go back to this show. Yeah. It's that kind of thing, where it's like I'm intimidated by thinking of going back and getting into this world again. But I know I will someday. You know, if not anywhere else then definitely in this class I'm gonna be taking. And it's just really, really just a phenomenal show. And it's my favorite show of all time, also the best show I've ever seen. And I think it speaks a lot to the show that it can be both of those for me. So, that's my number one. All right. Now, my number one is a 60-hour long show. You can It's five seasons, which is not short, but you can get through it pretty quick. Yeah. It's pretty easy yeah. to just you start season one, you go to season five. Sean show, Sean's number one show is a little different.
1: Yeah. But, you know, but I think this is going to come out of nowhere for everybody listening to yeah, this yeah, podcast. Yeah. There's it's no It's a total surprise. There's no possible way that anybody listening to this podcast would have any idea that my number one favorite show of all time, is...
0: Doctor Who! Oh, yeah! I feel like I should have had music queued up for that. You don't need music. It doesn't okay. require music. All right.
1: It's just Doctor motherfucking Who, man. Yes. My favorite show ever. Something that just consumed my life for <laughs> a year. It's, it's, it's taken a part of me, but has given me so much back in return. Yes. Doctor Who, if somehow you're listening to this podcast and you have no fucking clue what <laughs> Doctor Who is, I'm There's sorry. Way. There's no yeah. way
0: someone who has listened to more than one episode of our podcast is not familiar with Doctor I, Who. I don't
1: think there has been a episode of this podcast where we didn't mention Doctor Who in some capacity. I mean, do
0: we want to really quickly go over our history with the series just on this podcast? I mean, sure. Okay, when, when Season 6 premiered, I believe, Yes, season this six. Was, we were doing a totally different podcast yeah. at the time. It was called The Monthly Ten. And we did this, for one, we would do one episode a month, but for Doctor Who we did three in one month because we were counting down, we weren't even counting down, but we did the best serial or episode for every single Doctor. Yeah. So all 11 of them. And Sean picked them because he'd seen everything and I watched each one and we talked it. That was a great podcast. We had yeah. a lot of fun with it. We may re-air it someday or something. Yeah. It's really good. And then we wound up just finding that whenever we didn't have a topic, we would talk about it again and again and again. Yeah. And in fact, it was Doctor Who that made us rename the monthly ten, the monthly stuff, because the last episode of the monthly ten, we talked about all the Doctor Who Christmas specials. Realized that was in no way a top ten list. Yeah. And you just on the podcast renamed it monthly stuff. Yes.
1: Yeah. Then we turned it into the monthly stuff. Continued to talk about Doctor Who. Yep. After the fact, we did like you know talked about uh, series six.
0: Yeah. As a there. whole.
1: And then, once we started this podcast, then we started doing... Every weekly time, episodes. Yeah, weekly episodes, when the episodes were airing in their butt-fucked, like, nonsense yeah. episode, whatever they're doing right now. And so, <laughs> but we
0: review them all in the podcast, and then Doctor Who just winds up coming up in random discussions all over the place. Yeah,
1: it is Yeah, it is something I... is constantly on my mind, is Doctor Who, because I have seen every single... all. I was just looking this up... There are now, as of the last Christmas special, 790 episodes. Ten episodes from now, we will hit 800 episodes of that fucking TV show. Which is a
0: milestone because we've been saying on this podcast, oh, there's been 700 episodes. Yeah, for... yeah,
1: 700 or so episodes is yeah. sort of like the number we've just been throwing out.
0: Which has been accurate until yeah. ten and episodes soon, from now.
1: Yeah, soon we'll have to adjust that number and say it's like, yeah, there's about 800 episodes of this TV show. I've seen 790 episodes of Doctor Who. That is, although that is also that this is comprising like two hundred forty some stories. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Doctor Who is about a guy named the Doctor. He's an alien, a time lord, who he gets a a divi- a, a machine, a traveling machine called the TARDIS, time and relative dimension in space that can travel anywhere in space and time. And he goes on adventures in time and space and picks up random strays along the way and they sort of follow him around and then he just sort of abandons them by the wayside and gets some nuance when he gets bored. And that's basically Doctor Who. It's, we, he's been doing that since 1963.
0: You should also give the Neil Gaiman introduction to Doctor oh, Who.
1: I don't know if I can even remember it off the top of my head.
0: Okay, so we just looked up the quote we were talking about. I, this is Neil Gaiman who wrote a really great episode of Doctor Who. One of the uh, best, yeah. the Doctor's wife. And, uh, and he had a great quote about how to, you describe the series. Yeah.
1: No, look, there's a blue there's a blue box. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. It can go anywhere in time and space and sometimes even where it's meant to go. And when it turns up, there's a bloke in it called the doctor and there will be stuff wrong and he will do his best to sort it out and he will probably succeed because he's awesome.
0: Basically, yeah. that's Doctor Who and they've and it has worked for them for 800 episodes. Yeah. Well, almost 800, 800 episodes. episodes. But tell us your fascinating history with Doctor okay, Who. Okay, so as you
1: said, it was, what was it, your number nine with yeah, yeah, Doctor yeah. Who? And you said that you had actually started watching it a little bit before me, which I believe is true. And I don't remember where I heard about it. Like, it's just people talking about Doctor Who. And I was like, this was after, this was some the short while after I finished watching The X Files. I remember that. And so, again, I, there was a hole in my life, there was a spot I needed to fill when I was just bored to do stuff. It's like, and it was like, just when you get on this role of watching TV shows, it is really hard to stop. It's almost like when you read, like a lo- when you read a lot of books, it's just like you need another book to read because it's like all of a sudden there's this like spot in your day where it's like this is where I used to be reading a book and now I don't, and I used to do that. Now I watch TV shows instead. Now I actually kind of watch movies instead, but or now I play games instead. I went from movies into games, but anyways. So after I watched the X Files, I was like, I'm going to watch this Doctor Who thing. So I was looking into it and I quickly discovered this is this is way more than I realized this is this is this is not a good situation for me because everybody else that I knew who watched Doctor Who just watched since the the 2005 revival with Christopher Eccleston which is a totally fine sane place to start watching that show I'm not a totally fine sane person I have I believe I've really talked about this on the podcast before I have a weird thing with, like, and this is one of the biggest problems with me reading comic books, like, why I just can't read most comic books unless they're, like, standalone things, is it really, really bugs me if I'm watching something and I know there's, like, canonical stuff that has happened before this. Like, I can't just pick up a show in the middle. I can't just pick up a comic book run in the middle of it. It just really bugs me, and I'm just not able to enjoy it. Like, I just have learned that about myself. I've tried it multiple times in the past. It's one of the main reasons why I don't watch a lot of TV shows is because I just can't watch them while they air because... If I watched them when I like picked it up at the beginning, I would eventually miss an episode, and then as soon as I miss an episode, I'm fucked because I was just, it would bug me way too much to keep on watching that show. I wouldn't be able to enjoy it as much as I otherwise would, so then I just wouldn't watch it. So with Doctor Who, I was like, well, okay, there are no, there's no reasonable way for me able to, for me to be able to watch this entire show. But I know it would just bug me too much to try to pick it up at the revival thing because I know it's still canonically part of the whole show. But I want to check it out. So I went, I found, I found a way to watch the original, An Unearthly Child, which aired November 23rd, 1963. November 23rd is my birthday, so... It's, it was a match made in heaven. It's, it's, it was fate. It was, it was, it was destined to happen at some point in my life. And so I watched An Unearthly Child with William Hartnell being the Doctor, and that is a fucking fantastic, that's one of the best episodes of Doctor Who still. Like, you've it's, seen it. Yeah. It's fucking good. Especially for when it was made. Fucking. That episode of Doctor Who, like, as far as, like, in technical, like, direction and stuff like that, is better than any Doctor Who episode that would be made until, like, Tom Baker would be the Doctor. This fucking. I don't know how. What happened? Why that episode just happens to be so, like, specifically. It's like, it just doesn't particularly feel like a TV episode to me compared to, like, the other Doctor Who episodes. I
0: think it's when you have to, you know know you're watching something from 1962 and you just want to watch it, but it's got some fascinating ideas and it's so fun to look at that and think of how much would grow out of this yeah. one little, little story different. they're telling. Because it starts with a very small story.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just these two teachers who have this, like, the unearthly child is Susan, uh, the doctor's granddaughter, who th- goes to this school on Earth. The two teachers are like, kind of creeped out because she th- goes on about, like, the fifth dimension and whatever. And so they follow her to this, uh, like, junkyard, where she walks into a police box, and then they run into the doctor there, and the doctor kind of kidnaps them and locks them them in the police box, and then they go to 10,000 BC, and then get, like, involved in crazy caveman politics, and as soon as crazy caveman politics happened, I was hooked, because that is the weirdest fucking story to start your sci-fi show, is to then go into the past and get involved with this political argument, what is effectively this long political argument between the long-standing son of the chieftain who, like, represents, the, like, the entrenched power and this new radical force of this caveman from another tribe coming in and trying to upset him and both of them trying to find some way to make fire because whoever makes fire proves that they're, like, the true heir to to, to the caveman throne. Yeah. It's like... What the fuck is this? Why is this so sort of, like this weird political analogy for like the, like ninety percent of all like s- throne successions in history? What the fuck is this? It's like this, it's like caveman
0: metaphor for the English Civil War. What the fuck is going on? But it's fascinating. It is fascinating. It is like I, I think I want to tell a story about that really quick. Sure. We, yeah. Sean and I were hanging out one night with a friend of ours named Lexi, Dude. and she she thought she really wanted to watch Doctor Who, and we're like. Well, then we need to give you a test. Yeah. And so, and I had never seen the first episode, but I always wanted to. And I'm like, and Sean's like, why don't we just start at the beginning?
1: Yeah, because that's where you fucking start. You start at the goddamn beginning, motherfucker. And you
0: were eager about this, and I was super eager about this. And Lexi thought she was eager for about a minute, and then we started watching it. And she basically made us turn it off during the Caveman Politics, and you and I were like... I think literally I was yeah. it's, been, it's been like two years since i watched an episode, so I'm like, yeah, I remember this. This episode is fucking great. And you had that kind of nostalgia, like, this is great. And I'm like, they're making good points. Yeah. And Lexi's just like, what is this? And I'm like, you know what? It's like, you're not gonna, you can't watch Doctor Who if you don't think this is awesome.
1: It's like, you have to rethink your life if you don't think this is awesome. You have to go somewhere else. You can't be around me. <laughs> For a while, at least. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. That's... And, you know... Again, sane people. Don't be me. Start watching the show at the revival, the, <laughs> the revival series, and then just watch some Doctor Who serials, like the ones that trickle up that you hear about that are really good, or you know, listen to our podcast of like my favorite ones from each of the Doctors and listen to those and watch those episodes. Don't be like me because that there was, was some roadblocks. Yeah, watching seven hundred ninety episodes of the TV show, maybe not the healthiest thing in the world. I had fucking. I mean, I had a hell of a time doing that. That was. And just like past that point with the first Doctor, I think it was just incredible that the the way the show, and why I love Doctor Who so much, is that the show just evolves itself in this very subtle way, where, you know, what it was in 1963 is completely different to what it is now, but somehow that core character, of the Doctor, still feels the same. Like, it oh, yeah. still feels like it is somehow the same character, even though they had absolutely no intention in November 23rd, 1963, to have this character that would exist, you know, fucking today. And have this, the eleventh actor playing this character, but still the same character.
0: I think it was—it was so that was such a stark realization for me when I started with Christopher Eccleston, had those three Doctors, and then I went—you had me watch the one from each of the other seven yeah. Doctors, and I went back, and I immediately got that, like William Hartnell, same guy. Yeah. You know, Patrick Troughton, same guy. All of them. And it's just like that is—it's incredible that it holds up across a big swath of space and time.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Fucking insane, this show. that It's still going on. and You know, like, they... The BBC tried to kill it several times. You know, there's... We, we went into this in our Doctor Who podcast of, uh, with Colin Baker when he was the sixth Doctor. Uh, I think Michael Graves, the uh, guy who was running the BBC at the time, fucking hated Doctor Who. He wanted Doctor Who to die. And so what did Doctor Who do... They they made it into an actual metaphor on the show and put had the trial of a time lord and they put they put the doctor literally on trial on the show like he was on the BBC and you know they almost killed Doctor Who there then the seventh doctor came around he had a good couple of years and then the Doctor Who sort of like slowly came off the air and they had a TV movie an American TV movie that I'm kind of fond of but is not that good and it's then, worth
0: watching as a historical curiosity watching. yeah
1: and then and then 2005 all of a sudden Russell T Davies is like. Let's bring this back. Like, Britain can't be Britain if fucking Doctor Who's not on the air. So he's like, let's make Britain Britain again. revived Doctor Who, but I've... Did it in the smartest way yeah, possible. By keeping it still technically in continuity. And But now you have the, the ninth Doctor, and I think one of the smartest things, because you were describing this when you, with, when you were talking about Doctor Who on your list, is that that episode rose of when the, of the first episode of the revived series... They make Rose the point-of-view character, and the most fascinating thing about that episode to me is that when I came to that episode, I had watched the st- all of the previous episodes with all the other Doctors. So for me, even though I could definitely see that Rose was a point-of-view character, I like I was attached to the Doctor character, and I was seeing Rose more through him because... That's the fucking doctor I have seen fucking you know forty years of stories with this character. I'm attached to him, Rose. You have to prove yourself. But it was really interesting that the way they wrote that episode is that for new people coming into the show, you were attached to Rose and used Rose as your point of view character to sort of introduce you into this larger mythology. And it's really, it's really incredible that the, that that episode works both ways. That you can either be completely insane and have lost all Doctor Who and watch it and still really enjoy that episode and not feel like it is this episode you could just skip because it's just, like, for newbies. But it's also, if you are a newbie, it is for newbies. It's the perfect introduction to that series.
0: I think Russell T. Davies, you know, sometimes we criticize some of the... Some of his creative choices on the show were not yeah. the best. But, you know, he was... His his vision for how to bring the show back was genius. Yeah. And it was genius in its simplicity, which is, just do Doctor Who.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just do, just Doctor, do Doctor Who. Just do Doctor Who. Like, and try to... And then the other, like, genius thing they did is that they added the Time War thing into the factor so that they, uh, so with the Time War, you know, nobody who watched Doctor Who before had any idea what the Time War was because Russell T. Davis just sort of made it up as something that happened in the interim, and so it was something that new people and old people could both sort of come together with the show and, like, they're kind of both on the same page because nobody knows what the fuck the Time War is about. So that was another really brilliant element, and yeah, just being able to revive the show after all those years is awesome. Like it's incredible, and it's still going, and it's they're doing some of the best stuff they've ever done today. Like I said, the Doctor's Wife, that Neil Gaiman episode, is one of the best Doctor Who episodes. Matt Smith is one of the best Doctors. I mean, same with David Tennant. David yeah. Tennant was absolutely a phenomenal Doctor. Christopher Eccleston was. And like, I think it's, it's amazing that they brought the show back. It's still, to me at least recognizably the same show, like, you know, there are obviously a lot of differences, but it's like the heart of the show still feels the same to me. The heart of that character still feels the same to me, and they haven't fucked it up. Like, it's amazing to me that they did not fuck that up.
0: And I think one thing that's really, I think, important to note about the, the current Doctor Who is that it is still, not only did they make it where it's really good and on par with what was before and even sometimes superior to different periods of the show's history it is fully relevant as a piece yeah. of the modern TV landscape. Yeah. D- D- Doctor Who, a show in its 30, like, third season. 33rd, yeah. 33rd season is just as relevant as much of the other stuff on TV today. It is, I think, right up there with, like, Mad Men yeah. and Game of Thrones as the best produced show. It is visually yeah. fantastic. Murray Gold's music is incredible, and I think Matt Smith, I firmly believe Matt Smith is still giving the best performance on TV. Yeah. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And with Doctor Who, you know, Obviously, I am not trying to say that, like every single episode of Doctor Who is perfect, and that is not why it is my favorite t v show and the, and it's also why, like you know very specifically, this is not a list of the best t v shows I've ever seen because I don't give a shit about a list of the best t v shows I've ever seen because to me, at a certain point, critical quality of a show like that's that's great, but it's like that's that emotional attachment of having spent so much time with these characters and in this world is what I come to the like the t v or comic book format for. And obviously, Doctor Who, with all that time, is able to build up so much nostalgia and so much affection for this world and these characters and for the Doctor himself. And even though there are periods of Doctor Who history where there are nary a fucking good episode in sight, you know, the Sixth Doctor did not have what I would even really call a good episode at all. Like, there were, he had a few okay episodes, but the Sixth Doctor got fucked. But I still enjoyed watching it. Like, I still enjoyed Colin Baker as the Doctor. I still had fun watching those episodes and seeing what they were doing with it. And at a certain point, it's almost like the fact that the show is so long, like, I couldn't stop watching it. Like, I had to see how is this show going to still survive? How is this show going to remain relevant? How are they going to keep on changing it up? And, And, well,
0: maybe that's one of the best things to note is that you know, the show is always able to get better yeah. than if it had a weak period, or or it's always able to take another step. Like, you know, yeah. Colin Baker years are are fairly weak, even though Colin Baker is trying his best. Yeah. But then they come back and they have Sylvester McCoy. Yeah, and, and Sylvester
1: McCoy, like, his, past his first season, that's some of the best Doctor Who there's ever been. It's yeah. Sylvester McCoy... It's amazing, Doctor. Like they completely reinvented him. They've had like that whole they've added a lot more mystery into the character. You know, they yeah, they they were able to, they a cane with a question mark, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fucking cane with a question mark. What the fuck is that all about? Never found that out. That that was that was the real cartmel master plan. That's what they were all building up to. Why does he have a fucking umbrella with a question mark on it? Never found that out. But yeah, like, the, the way that show was able to survive having these really rough spots and then did use that to improve itself and change itself up, you know, through necessity, you know, it, it's like a survival of the fittest kind of thing. It's like, at the end of the day, Doctor Who has beaten every other show that has aired since 1963 because that motherfucker is still goddamn going, and that motherfucker will never stop. You know, they had, it had a break, it got a kind of lame TV movie, but it's still really fun to watch in a B-movie kind of way. There's a shit ton of really great audio dramas that are still ongoing. There's a lot of books and comic books. I've read a few of the comic books.
0: I've read a, a couple of the novels from the Matt Smith era. They're great. Really yeah. fun to read. If you just want a good, like, 200-page read, really fun. It's like reading a good episode that was never produced.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's... God, In some of the stuff they did in the Doctor Who Expanded universe is insane. Like, my favorite one is there's this companion character called Frobisher who is just like... Tr- uh, shape-shifting penguin dude. Oh, I remember with, that, yeah. Like, like, he has, like, this sort of Boston accent. It's great. Frobisher's awesome. But, yeah, like, Doctor Who... It is just... Doctor Who is just... It's too big to even try to talk about, I guess. With my... I, with my personal history with the series, I feel like... Like, my favorite Doctor is Patrick Troughton. I've said that before. The second Doctor. And I think... It speaks, like, so much to the show that my favorite period of that show what I still think is sort of the purest Doctor Who is Patrick Troughton's last season and Patrick Troughton also barely any of his episodes still exists he had three seasons a significant chunk of his last season still exists of like full stories but the BBC like you know burned and like wrote over a bunch of the tape from that era (sighs) so like a bunch of those I mean there's still ways to watch them as sort of like audio stories in a way which is not obviously the ideal way to watch them but they're still entertaining at least for me it's like, like Patrick in that period is such a pure Doctor Who, and it's so much fun for me to watch. And I think what Doctor Who did for me is that, you know, I think if you listen to this podcast, you'd understand I have a very cynical outlook on life. I am, I dare say, the most cynical person I've ever met. I don't think they're, the, I think it's harder to be any more cynical than me. I think there are a lot of other people at that level where it's like, that's it. But I think with Doctor Who, what I like about Doctor Who for me personally is what it kind of says, the overall message of the show is in a way, being cynical is totally fine. And you can you can be really cynical and still kind of be a good person and do good things and feel good about that. Because at the end of the day, like it doesn't it doesn't matter if there's anything more beyond it. It doesn't matter if you get like if there's like a heaven or something, it doesn't matter if you get rewarded in some sort of like spiritual karmic sense or anything like that. It's like all that matters is that at the end of the day, you know, you're You you help people out, and that's just what the Doctor does. It doesn't matter, you know, if he's, like, from, like, this, like, big intelligent point of view. It's like, oh, he's abusing his power. He's not looking at the full ramifications of his actions. It's like, at the end of the day, just try to be a good person. Just try to help some people and have a lot of fun doing it. And that, to me, that's kind of the message of Doctor Who. It's okay where, like, in my mind, in, like, deep inside the Doctor's character, and I think this is... Plainly evident, if you watch like most of Doctor Who, you see this darker side of the character. That deep down in his heart, the Doctor is a deeply cynical person. Oh yeah,
0: he's, he's tortured
1: exactly, and he's, like the Doctor doesn't like have the sort of any sort of faith in a higher power or anything that gives him that sort of thrust. And like the only way he's able to deal, in my interpretation of the character, with that deeply cynical side is by his helping people and, like, his going out Living life as fully as he can. Yeah, living life every single day as fully as he can with the people he cares about and then doing what he can for people who he sees that are in need and that he has the power to help and that's it. And that's just all the Doctor tries to do and to me, that's like, that's the most fulfilling way to try to live your life and it's like, Doctor Who kind of made me feel more okay about that and that's, you know, that's fucking Doctor Who. Yeah. Like you said with The Wire, The Wire kind of changed you. Doctor Who definitely changed me. Yeah. And in a lot of different ways. Again, it. It consumed me for a year of my life, but I can't, it still I does. Think, for us. Yeah, yeah, it still does. But I, th- I think I came out the better for it. Yeah,
0: I and I think that's a really awesome reading of the show that I think you can totally see in any period of it. I mean, that's why I think you know I talked in my when I talk about Doctor Who, my number yeah. nine. That going from Christopher Eccleston to David Tennant and then to Matt Smith, what was so impressive to me is that I always felt like the exact same character to me, just yeah. with a new spin. And I think that cynical heart is kind of still, or yeah. that, that darker, tortured side, that's what it is there. I mean, Christopher Eccleston, why he's such a fascinating doctor is because he's raw. He is, yeah. He's broken when we meet him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's been kind of stripped to his barest core, and when he's with Rose, sometimes he can find a happier side in these things. But he's a very damaged guy. And David Tennant has a more optimistic out, like a side. He's got this he's like yeah. a sort of happier side to him, but he's still kind of got that. Yeah. And he's still going through this healing process. Yeah. And then Matt Smith kind of gets to play this full synthesis. Mm -hmm. But what's so interesting is that I think a lot of people, if they have not contextualized the Matt Smith performance with a lot of other stuff, they may miss... That I think one of the Matt the Matt Smith performance is one of the darkest Doctors. Yeah, it, because yeah, while he's some
1: really dark elements, you know, while he fucking shot a crippled space and blew his ass <laughs> up with missiles. Well, not even Don't that. Like, that happened.
0: <laughs> even when we're in character, with yeah, Matt Smith, yeah. It's like just he can be he's hugely funny. He can be very childlike and all these things. But what defines Matt Smith to me is that more than any of the other contemporary Doctors, at least he feels a thousand years old. Yeah, and yeah. he wears that age on his sleeves. And it's amazing that he can do it as a 30-year-old guy. Yeah, But he can do it very well, and what that age brings with it is a lot of hurt and a lot of cynicism and a lot of pain. And I think there's actually, while I don't love that they kept Amy and Rory around for those extra yeah. episodes, I think there is some logic in the idea that he, at this point, is, it's tough to let go of these things for him yeah. as a guy who's who's lived through this stuff. And I don't think they got that fully, they don't get, didn't get that across well in these last five, yeah. but it's an idea that I think merits exploration, and I think Stephen Moffat, for the most part, has been doing good with those elements of, of yeah. the Doctor, and, I'm, and I think it's going to be so fascinating to see him with a new companion.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the best things about Doctor yeah, Who, is it still on the air? Is that it's still, and, it, and it's, it is able to constantly revive itself, you know, regenerate itself with the yeah. Doctor, and just like, it's always so much fun to be a Doctor Who fan, because if you've watched as much dr who as i have you you come to this point where it's like you you don't like you become intensely attached to each companion and to each doctor but you also are kind of waiting to see it's like you know that companion is going to leave and the doctor is going to get need to get someone new so who is that new person going to be how is that person going to interact with this doctor and when is this doctor version of the doctor going to leave us and who is his replacement going to be and it's also kind of terrifying at the same time cuz you always know you know we've gotten it right 11 times But it just takes that one time where you fuck it up. And it's like, I hope that day never comes. It's like, you know, I think at least Stephen Moffat obviously is a smart enough dude that he will get it right when he, if he's still the showrunner when uh, Matt Smith stops being the doctor. But it's like, you know, it's like, eventually we're going to have a 12th doctor. It's like right now we're in the process of getting a new companion. And it's like the show, more so than any other show, is constantly re-evolving itself. Because it's like you're changing the person playing the title character, but he's still the title character. It's It's fascinating. yeah, Yeah, it's definitely fascinating. And I think and I think the best part for me with Doctor Who it's sort of it is all encapsulated really in if you just look at that Neil Gaiman episode that we're talking about, the Doctor's Wife. The what I mean, that's one of the most powerful experiences I've had is watching that episode because Neil Gaiman sort of weaves in so much Doctor Who history into that one episode and the relationship between the Doctor and the TARDIS that he explores there, that it's like you have I have this weird sensation of like. I've, like, lived this entire... Like, I've lived the Doctor. You know, like, I've lived that entire life because it takes so much actual, real-life time to watch all of those stories, and those stories take place over, like, the course of this ancient being who has, like, you know, who can live for thousands of years, and you get to see how that character evolves. And so, like, there's so much weight and power behind that for me now that it's, like, any little reference or any little thing, any little slight way they change up the show like, recolors everything that came before it. And it also makes it super fascinating to rewatch old stuff, because then you can see how these elements of the character, intentionally or not, are sort of, like, taken up again later, or, like, changed or, like, messed with in some way, way, like, 30 years down the line. And so a show with that much history behind it and having me having experienced all that history, it just has so much power to me personally. And, I- and so much weight.
0: And I think this is... I want to go back to something that we've talked a lot recently on this podcast with recent episodes of this Doctor Who
1: Doctor stuff. Who. Yeah.
0: I think what you just said defines why neither of us like that, and especially yeah. you. Yeah. And I think if people have not gotten it before, that's what Sean's talking yeah. about. Is that anything... Any of those little changes that, like, recolors it, well, that's them trying to really big yeah. retcon, rewrite... Yeah,
1: yeah. Trying to take the name of the show, which has always been this sort of tongue-in-cheek thing that fans have gravitated to, and make it this weird plot point... That's not a good idea. We've gone on record of why that is not a good idea. You know, hopefully... You know, hopefully, you know, Stephen Moffat has a much better, like, track record than he does a bad one. Like, he's... Like, he's had a few rough things recently, you know, starting with the uh, season finale for Series 6 that I really did not like. But past that, you know, fucking... You know, he gave us Series 5, which is absolutely phenomenal. And before that, all
0: the ones he wrote in the Russell T. Davies years? Yeah, it was fucking great. Neil Gaiman, in that statement we read earlier said, now go shut up and watch Blink. Because yeah. it doesn't get much better than Blink. Yeah, yeah.
1: Blink is an absolutely phenomenal episode. So yeah, hopefully Stephen Moffat won't fuck things up. I have hope that he will find, like, he has some plan, he has some way to make this Doctor Who thing not be as dumb as it obviously seems like it's going to be. Like, hopefully, hopefully it pans out. Like, hopefully yeah. it's not something horrible. I don't think it will be. And but I it's that, it is that, is that sh- like, that just the small chance that it is, like, fucking terrifies me to my very core. So...
0: But, you know, as you just said... They're thirty-three years still going strong. Yeah, no reason. I mean, not you know, be... for fuck's
1: sake, in the Eighth Doctor's TV movie, they said he was half human, and that's about as dumb as you can get with trying to retcon the characters, the Doctor's character. So, even if he does fuck it up, Doctor Who will probably be able to survive. You know, like there's, yeah. there's the Doctor Who has had some really rough patches in the past. Like I said, the BBC literally tried to kill Doctor Who and failed at it. So there we go, Doctor Who either. It'll be a sad, say, sad day when it eventually goes off the air. But even when the TV show stops, you know, we might you know, be dead like, when yeah, Doctor Who exactly. ends forever. Like it might outlive me. Who, yeah. f- who fucking knows? I mean, it's outlived some people. Like it's outlived a lot of people. It's a long-running fucking show.
0: I mean, here's the thing: it's like you know, we're already in the seventh series of the revised show yeah. with an eighth confirmed with Matt Smith and yeah. with this the new actress, Jenna Louise Coleman. So we know we're getting another series after yeah. this. And we know we're going to get more after that, because Doctor Who is a huge hit.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, there's no, like, signs of cancelization on the horizon. No,
0: and obviously one day this run of the show will become less financially stable, and it will eventually take some time off. But you know what? At that point, it will have 40, maybe 50 years of history into it. And someone at some point will say, there will be another Russell T. Davies who will say, Hey, this thing was great. Let's do it again.
1: Like, how crazy is it going to be when, like, the revived series gets, like, it's 10th season and it's just, like, the revived version of the show, like, just that section has gone on longer than most TV shows?
0: Yeah, yeah. That would be fucking crazy. Well, what's crazy for me is reaching the seven season milestone. That, because Star Trek, most of its shows had 7 seasons, that's always been, for me, like, in the back of my head, that's what a sci-fi milestone is. Yeah. So Doctor Who is in the 7th year. Yeah. Crazy! Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Doctor Who might easily... Easily my favorite TV show, like, one of my... How could it not be? You yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, if it wasn't, th- I would be living a depressing fucking life, dude. They're, like, my life would be dark if Doctor <laughs> Who was not my... Either that would be amazing, because I found something else that was even, like, that I had even a stronger personal attachment to.
0: But I'm imagining, like, someone who hates Doctor Who, but is forcing themselves to watch yeah, it I all. I, like,
1: watched all of it and it was just like, I... You know, I'm yeah, dead, I'm like, dead what inside. What have I been doing with my life? Oh, God. All right. Yeah. No, I am very, I'm very happy that I watched all of Doctor Who. That is not something that I regret in any way. His yep, fucking, fucking a man. Doctor
0: <laughs> Who. All right. Well, that's our whole top ten list. You want to do the good old fashioned countdown recap? Every, every oh yeah, one? let's do it. All right.
1: You can't do we we know we did our whole monthly ten podcast. We can't we can't do this without doing a the
0: ten wrap up at the end. Of course. Number ten for me, Jonathan. Star Trek and Star Trek: The Next Generation combined. Number 10 for me, Blackadder. Number 9 for me, Doctor Who. Number 9 for me, Star Trek, the original series. Number 8 for me, Parks and Recreation.
1: Number 8 for me, Sherlock Holmes, the Granada television series. Number 7, Firefly. Number 7, Claymore. Number 6, Full Metal Alchemist. Number 6 for me, Angel Beats. Number 5, Chuck. And number 5, Angel. J- just just, Angel. Number 4 for both of us, Dragon Ball. Ball. Number three, Freaks and Geeks. Number three, the entirety of the DC animated universe, including Batman the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, and Batman Beyond.
0: Number two, Mad Men. Number two, The X-Files. Number one, The Wire. And number one, Doctor Who. All right, so that was our top ten TV shows. We hope you enjoyed this two-part podcast. We'll be back at you next week with something probably a little more topical. Hopefully. We'll, We'll catch up on the last couple weeks. Yeah. See what's going on in the world. You know... I think actually next week we may be talking about Evil Dead movies because the Evil Dead remake is coming out, sure. and if we have time, if we have time, we may put that episode together. So we will see you guys next week. En- enjoy stuff. All right, there we go. That's how we're leaving it <laughs> off. Enjoy stuff.